Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. So my guest today is Michael Saltman, Michael A. Saltman. Right. You're the founder and president of the Vista Group, which develops and manages office, retail, industrial, and housing projects, not just here in Nevada, also in California, Florida, and Utah. Anywhere else other than those four? That's it. That's All right. Four. And little, I got a project in, in uh, Scotland as well. Do you really? I do. All right. I'll ask you about Scotland. But you grew up in um, Flint? Let me just make a, make a note here. Scotland, Flint, Michigan. You have a BA from Michigan State, a Juris Doctorate from Wayne State Law School. So a Michigander through and through. Yes, sir. You've been uh, practicing attorney in England and Switzerland, and you've had meaningful involvement in so many organizations. I'm just going to list a few. I'll probably, I'm going to miss some, but UNLV Foundation, YPO Gold, Nevada School of Arts, Council for a Better Nevada. Nevada Institute of Contemporary Arts, Springs Preserve Foundation, Las Vegas Technology Center, and the UMC Board of Governors. And I know there's probably a handful of others that, I'm sure there are. that I didn't Form, mention. Formerly, formerly UMC Board of Governors. I'm formerly. On the board. Okay. One of the founding members, yes. And you co-founded the Nevada Innovation Center, right. as well as with your wife, co-founded the UNLV Boyd School of Law Saltman Center for Conflict Resolution, which we're definitely going to talk about that more. With everything that's happening in Israel and Gaza right now, I'm curious how that plays. In the whole world. In the whole world. Good. I, I want to elaborate more on that one. So you're a car racer, a runner, a visionary, a world traveler, and a mensch. <laughs> Did I miss anything? You got it all. The, <laughs> all the mensch right. part is up to you. That's an interpretation. No, I have it on good authority that you're a, you are a mensch in the community. Okay. So I'll push pause there what on the intro. It, what, is a, what is a mensch? A mensch is a Yiddish word. Which um, I would probably say combines both a gentleman, a philanthropist, and just an all-around good person. Thank you. Flattering. Thank you. <laughs> so I'll pause there and say officially welcome to the Takeaways Podcast, Michael Saltman. Thank you, Haim. Nice to be here today. So those are my words. Uh, tell me in your own words, who are you and what do you do? Well, I am from Flint, Michigan, which was then, when I was there in the 40s and 50s, it was a thriving metropolis with... Lots of General Motors activity and successful programs. And then I left and went to Michigan State, as you said. Graduated there in 64. Went to Wayne State Law School. Actually left Michigan State and went to California. Got a really great job in Los Angeles. And I was making more money than I ever thought I would make. And my mother called me one day and she said, aren't you going to go to law school? And I said, well, maybe I should. So I got back in my car and I drove back to Detroit. I drove back to Michigan. I went to U of M and they wouldn't let me in because I was too late to apply. So I drove down to Detroit, Michigan. <laughs> I went to Wayne State Law School. I walked into the admissions office. I met the dean in the office just by coincidence. I had my transcript with me, and I said, I'm, I'd like to get into the law school. It's August now, and the law school starts in a couple of weeks. And he took a look at my transcript, and he said, I'm going to let you in. So I got into the law school. Just like years, that. Three years later, that I That wouldn't happen today. No, and that, of course not. And three years later, I left the law school, and... I was lucky to win what was called the Book Award in one of my classes at the end of my law school 
career, and I was able to get a scholarship for a year, and I went off to London, and my whole life then changed from Michigan and U.S. travel to living in Europe and having another life that took me across the ocean to... Why London? What was what was there? I, what brought I, you there? University College London was there. That's where my program was for my scholarship year, my postgraduate year. And I was there for like six months or so in that program. I wasn't loving it. I was in an aerospace program with one of the top leading professors in that world, and he and I didn't get along very well. And by then, I was already a lawyer. I was admitted to the bar, and he would not... He was just dictating. He wasn't exchanging in conversation with me and my fellow students, so I decided to leave, and I put an ad in the Financial Times saying something something really trite, like, young lawyer seeks inter- interesting international challenge, and I left for a little cheap, cheap trip to um, Mallorca with my then wife, and I came back to London, and at, lo and behold, I opened up a post office box, and there were numerous letters asking to be to have a discussion regarding a possible job. And the reason for that wasn't me, is American lawyers were then in demand in the in Europe because the, the whole mutual fund financial services world went from the US to Europe and London was the home of that that process in the in the European segment. So I got a job in London working at an international life insurance company, part of the investors overseas services syndicate, and there I was in London working as a lawyer and and learning my way around the European world. Terrific. Uh, and how did you get to Vegas from there? Uh, I went from, that's a great did story. Did you move around? Yeah, I went from London to Geneva to work in Geneva for a while. In fact, in Geneva in 1968, I had my first business trip to Greece. And my second business trip was to Israel, working on a project in Israel. That's a whole other story. Come back to that maybe right. later. Uh, then I went back to London. I met my then wife, Sonia, in London. And... Um, we then um, moved to Munich together, and in 1974, there was my first big apocalyptic event when the oil crisis hit the world, and dollar investments really diminished in demand. So I had met a friend in Geneva whose father owned some property, lots of properties in Las Vegas, and he said, why don't you come with me to Las Vegas and help me develop my father's properties, and packed up my bag, sold my Porsche, and left with $4,500 in my pocket and came to Las Vegas, Nevada and never looked back. Did uh, What was the perception of Las Vegas back then? Because now there's a cachet. What was it like then? 250,000 people maybe in the entire county, and that was probably an exaggerated number. Um, it was spectacular because there was so much opportunity here. It was like low-hanging fruit in so many ways in the development world because everything was needed and wanted. So it was an absolute like a toy store for projects that I could get into. So this is the late 70s? or 75. 75, mid-70s. February the 10th, 1975 is when I moved to Las Vegas. Everybody who came to Las Vegas who comes, I think, knows the date. I do. I know the date. (laughs) I was born here, so January 27th, 1980 is my date. There you go. (laughs) Uh, You mentioned your wife, Sonia. Talk about her and your son. Sonia, I've got a son and a daughter. I have a daughter, daughter Sarah. No, yeah, daughter, Sarah. daughter, Sarah. She lives in Park City. She's got two beautiful kids. So I've got two grandkids from Sarah, 23 and 17. Um, Sonia and I came here together, obviously, without children. So I had Sarah before from my previous marriage. Um, we Sonia um, is a fluent in German. She, I met jo- Sonia in a business in London when she was a translator. So she was a, born in Austria, fluent in Austrian, fluent in German, obviously fluent in English. And she was a translator. So when she came to Las Vegas, she applied to UNLV, to the German department. 
She'd probably be a little bit embarrassed to hear me talk about this, but she went to the German department and she was maybe head and shoulders above most people in the German department. Very well read, very literate, very articulate, and that lasted for a short period of time, even though she made lots of friends in that German department world. And uh, she applied to the psychology department. She became a marriage and family therapist. And uh, she had a really nice, successful career as, a, as an MFT, having a private practice in Las Vegas. And you've been well-adjusted ever since. She's my, I'm, her, I'm her sole client. <laughs> I'm not her sole client. I mentioned before, my wife is also an MFT, exactly. so that's the joke, because I'm very well-adjusted. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> She takes good care of me and takes excellent care of my family. And then David came along in 1980. And so, uh, and then uh, that was a joy for us too. That's a gift. And you know David, of course. Mm-hmm. So then uh, we've had a wonderful life together. He's got two beautiful kids, Alexander, 14, and his daughter, be 15 pretty soon. His daughter, J- Jamie, who's now 10. Wonderful kids and a wonderful family. His wife also is a psychologist, Christina. And they, they moved, they came to work here. He came to work for me here. He went to school here, of course. Went back to Boston to college, went to California to law school. Came here in 2008. and uh, Great so timing. He came, came to work for me in August of 2008. August. Mm-hmm. The town was booming. I'd been selling off assets at record prices. And then September came along and the market completely cratered. And David, for the next X number of years, working for his dad as my in-house attorney, trial by fire. He did an amazing job of managing all the distress of that period of time from 08 to like 15, 16. And then he came to me, I don't know, maybe four or three or four years ago and said he had an opportunity in Boston to go back to work. And what did I think of that idea? I thought that was a great idea for him. So off he and his family went to Boston. They live in Brookline and he's having a wonderful career now. He's running a company in Boston called Lease Pilot, which is a leasing technology real estate venture. And He's in tall cotton, as we say. He's doing great. The whole family's doing great. So all my kids and family are all doing really well, which is a Knock real, on wood. Real, real blessing. That's great to hear. So yeah. you talked about your friend said, hey, come to Vegas, and there's some property there. Did you come and start developing right away well, with he them? And or I what were, was the? We, we met in Geneva. We became really good friends, four of us, wives, and, and he and I. And um, we spent lots of time together skiing and traveling and uh, playing tennis and working together in this company in Geneva. And as the market created, like I said, in 74 with the oil crisis, his name is Brooks Pace. Brooks came to me and said, why don't you come to work with me and my partner, Larry Larkin, in Las Vegas. And Larry was a prominent Larkin plumbing family and a really terrific man himself. And so I came in in February and uh, we then shortly thereafter acquired a piece of property across from UNLV. Um, that was a, owned by Chrysler Realty, and they were trying to get, get rid of their properties quickly in that in that period of time. And they gave us a, a deal we couldn't refuse, a $412,000 property for $10,000 down, interest all due and payable in two years. Pretty good opportunity, I would say. Wow. And we planned an apartment project, and uh, I went down to see New York Life, who'd been lending money to uh, Brooks and Larry and another uh, office project. And I went to see them to see if they would put together a long-term takeout commitment, kind of a long-term loan program for this apartment project. And this was in California. And they said to me, we don't make loans. We don't make housing loans in Las Vegas. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the town's redlined. I said, what does that mean? (laughs) That we don't make loans. And he went like this. Said the mob controls Las Vegas. We don't make loans in that environment, housing loans. 
Um, that was pretty distressing. I said, I don't know that situation. I don't know that history. I'm a kid that believes in ninth grade civics. I lived in Europe for years in a more formal background, and lending is part of the program. And anyway, I kept working and working on that episode for some time, and I kept going down to Los Angeles to keep working with that company, trying to get them to finally agree. And one day, they, I was sitting on the doorstep reading the Wall Street Journal, and this man named Earl Forsyth, who represented New York Life, came over and said, okay, we'll make the loan. Boom. That was a pretty big day. So I came back to Las Vegas. You have to be on the loan committee in two days. $50,000 deposit. So I came back to Las Vegas. And I could have gone to another loan committee down the road, but I was in a hurry after all this time mm-hmm. of just having this property, not being able to start a development. And I went to the airport, and before they had big security, this is like 75, 76, I went in, I had $500 in cash, and I had a check in an envelope, and I found a guy sitting, ready to go on a flight to New York with a suit and tie on. He looked pretty responsible. I came up to the guy, and I said, I'll tell you what, he delivered this check, this, this envelope, to 51 Madison Avenue in, in New York. I'll give you $500, and when you get there and you call me from there, a wire to you, a Western Union to you, another $500. He said, you got a deal. So four, five, <laughs> six hours later, I get a phone call from, this is a true story, I get a phone call from New York. The lawyer in New York had my check in hand. You're in the loan committee. And I, I forgot the guy's name, of course, but I got his information. And I wired Western, went to Western Union, wherever the hell that might have been. And I wired him $500 more. And I was in the loan committee. And my career took off like a rocket from that point on. So a great way to start the business in Las Vegas. And Larry and I became real good partners at that time, too. <laughs> um, uh, like, what caused you to trust this guy other than his suit? I think and I, wasn't there another way to get the money there? I've done a lot of that over the years. I trust a lot of people. <laughs> and most of them have been successful, not all. But I, have, I trust a lot of people based on how they look and how they observe and how they respond to me. And this guy looked trustworthy and it turned out. Wow. And the check could have been canceled. I mm-hmm. would have lost the $500, but he couldn't have cashed it. So I had no reason not to trust him. And he was responsible. It worked out great. And my career started, like I said, with that loan committee. And we built the project. And, excuse me, off we went. What a story. Yeah. So I understand at some point I mentioned uh, you became a car racer, got into car racing. That was much, much later. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about that, though. I'm okay. curious. So 19- how, how does that happen, and what did you race? Uh, I have a Porsche. I had a Porsche, and I went. My brother and I were doing this together. My brother was in the car business, and loved racing, and so I took my Porsche down to Arizona for the so-called Copper State One Thousand race, and that's a thousand-mile race in Arizona on open roads, police eliminating most all the traffic, so you have can drive as fast as you want to drive, and we came in second. Of a lot of drivers, all over a thousand miles worth of driving in Arizona on these beautiful state roads. And I came back and thought, this is a lot of fun, exciting. So I went to my friend Carl Young, who was then the Porsche guru in Las Vegas, and had him convert that vehicle, that nine early nine, that early 356, into a race car. I took it to Button Willow, California, and raced in my first vintage auto racing um, event. Came in sixth or seventh. That was a pretty good start for me. And uh, never won a race, by the way, but always was kind of... There's still time. Tried to be competitive. I'm, I'm done now. <laughs> I'm done, I'm done. Um, and then I came back and built an early 911, and we started racing all over all over the West. Phoenix, L.A., San Francisco, Las Vegas, wherever there was a racetrack. We raced for five or six years and had a really terrific time. Always Porsche? Always a Porsche. Why, why Porsche? Always Porsche. I just love Porsches. 
How did that start? Okay, that's a good question because when I I was living, I was working in London for this company called Shareholders Capital Corporation. Um, they in 1970-71 they had an opera, they had an operation also in, in Munich, Germany, and uh, they came to me one day and said, "We want to fold up our two offices together. We're going to fold up London into Munich and not Munich into London." I thought, "Oh, I don't want to leave London. I'm loving London. It's such an amazing environment here in that 60s and early 70s." And, said, well, Munich's the place, and we want you to run it for us. So I said, I'll do it, but I'm going to go buy a Porsche when I get there. So I moved to Munich, and the first thing I did was buy a used Porsche, just because I always loved Porsches, and that got me started in the Porsche world. I've had them ever since, and uh, that was a really great experience. And I love, love Munich. I had a wonderful time in Munich, an amazing city, very liberal city. The Olympics were coming, so they were rebuilding the 72 Olympics game, which was a critical event. That's when the whole first big terrorist activity mm-hmm. happened in, in Munich. But before that was going on, obviously, I was learning to live and really enjoy Munich, Germany. So Sonia and I moved into Munich, and and uh, life went on from there. Great time. You know, it's not often you meet someone that has had careers in so many different geographies. Right. And I'm curious, like, over your career here, how has how have those experiences in London and uh, Munich, I think you mentioned Geneva. Right. How has that like informed how you do business here or have done business here? That's a really great question. I think I learned how to adjust to different environments, different people. People are all the same basically around the world, but everybody's got a little different nuance. Languages are different. Obviously, there are some different traits on regional basis and different different environments. But I learned how to just kind of adjust to different environments, and I really learned to really enjoy that part of it because I would travel a lot while I was in Europe as well to different to Panama, to Curaçao, to Greece, to Israel, to Holland, to wherever there was business for me, Italy. Um, I was involved with different people at all these different places, and it really helped me here to kind of just adjust to my my setting here as well. And so I love people. I get along well with people in almost every environment. So that was a really, really amazing experience for me. And to this day, it still resonates. When I tell young people that ask me about what they should do in their life, I'm saying, Get a solid education. That's essential. Travel. Travel is really a big part of my program. And for people to travel, you get a chance to learn other parts of the world and these nuances that we're talking about. And taking good care of people on the way up and on the way down, both ways, so you always have good relationships with, with people, no matter what their status and their lifestyle might be. It's been a huge, huge benefit to me. And probably the biggest... I think the biggest feature of my success has been based on that long-time uh, activity for me. So education, travel, take care of people on the way up and on the way down. Right. Those I've had both good. ways, up and down. Up and down. Yeah. So that's a good segue. Uh, this show is called Takeaways, and it's about takeaways from people who have influenced me. And believe it or not, you've been one of those people over the years. Thank you. And I ask everyone the same question. The question is, what's the single most influential thing or event in your life that has defined or shaped you the most? There have been many. There's one that stands out. Um, I'll explain that and kind of get my thoughts together on that thought, on that item, because I've had many different experiences that have created huge opportunities for me. Um, probably the death of my father was probably the single most significant event in my life that changed my whole course of, of reality. I was 14 years old. My dad and I were very close. He was my hero. 
still is in some interesting way. Um, January the 3rd, 1957, he went from one day to the next, gone, playing bridge with my mother. The next day he was gone, had an aneurysm, wasn't detectable at the time, and I lost his hero. Uh, and it was a huge, huge gulf in my life. And I learned how to adjust. I learned how to become much more independent, took care of myself. My mother went back to school and working on her PhD, so I was pretty much left on my own. We weren't, I wasn't living alone, but she would go back and forth from Ann Arbor to Flint. And uh, I learned how to survive and I learned how to really take care of myself. And I think the is, and it's probably a plus and a minus because sometimes I get a little bit too caught up in taking care of myself and not to be thinking about how I should really relate to the rest of the world because I want to make sure that I'm taken care of. And so that process was huge for me for many, many years. And even to this day, all these many years later, I still think of that event as the most significant watershed event watershed event of my life. Did you have siblings? Had a brother, two years older. He's the guy that raced with me. Oh, that's right. You said yeah. brother. That's right. And I had a mother, very creative, educated mother and a big family around. But uh, I was basically on my own. And I still feel to many ways I'm on my own. I've got an incredible wife and I've got great kids and great friends. Mm. Um, but I live in my head a lot too. And probably some of that comes out of that loss of my dad when I was just a young teenage 14-year-old kid who'd caddied for me that year before. And that fall fall event, like in November, a cold event, he caddied for me in a golf tournament. And he stopped up the ninth hole and went home. And later I found out that he thought he had some kind of a heart palpitation going on. I didn't know that until he was gone. Hmm. Um, but it was kind of distressing to have him leave at the ninth hole. And then, of course, a couple months later, whatever was going on with that aneurysm, um, he was gone, and and I still think about that as a significant wow. event. Yeah. Do you know if your brother had the same sort of response that you did, as far I, as the, the, the independence? I, probably, I'm sure he did because he was obviously part. We were really close in the knit family, but I don't. We never talked about it. Jeff and I never. Jeff, his name was Jeff Saltman. We never really talked. About, I was too young to talk about it. Fourteen years old. Probably later on, 18, 19, 20, 30, 40, when we were together, I was sure we'd talk about it. But back then, I don't think we had much conversation about it at all. I was really just kind of on my own at that time. And I had a great high school career out of that, too. After that, I was on my own and had a great high school career and a good, young, youthful um, start of my life. But still, in the back of my mind always was the loss of this. Yeah captivating figure. So to me to have my kids around and grandkids around and be alive and be on the planet is such an incredible gift to me, Chaim, that I am totally blessed at every level having this long time life I've had and have these wonderful kids around me that really, really is the gift to me in the latter time, latter time of my lifestyle here, my life. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yes. Thanks for asking me. We can uh, take a hard left here okay. because on uh, episode takeaways episode forty two, okay. my very special guest that day was a guy named Mike Forche. Okay, and he and I get into talking, and he's talking about all of his stories and whatnot. And all of a sudden, you show up as a character in his story. So he he talked about you know his perception of how you guys met. So I'm going to ask you also. You share the story. How how do you remember you and Mike Forche meeting? That's a great story. We have a great relationship, Forshe and I do. Um, I was working with Chicago Title and Land Title in Las Vegas, and Terry Wright might have been Terry and 
Terry started in the Vanna title. Terry might have been in Chicago at the time. I'm not sure if it was Land or Chicago, but he started to form a new venture called Nevada Title, and he and Mike joined forces to create this new company. And I was then building, starting to build and design Renaissance Center East at Trop and Eastern, which is the leading modern contemporary shopping center of the time in Las Vegas. Um, and I needed some help because it was a big center, 220,000-foot center, and uh, I had an anchor all set up for it, and I needed some CCNRs to help govern the process. And Mike Forshay came to see me, and this is my version of Mike's story. I think I've heard Mike's version. That mine's, this, is, this is my version of it. I got a pretty good recollection, but <laughs> he came to me and said, how do we get your business? And I said, well, I'll tell you what. My friend Erwin Malaski has just built a mission center at the corner of Flamingo and Maryland Parkway. And I know he has CCNRs for that project, which is a legal terminology. And I said, if you can get me the CCNRs from that project that I can use as a clone to, for the Renaissance Center that I'm building, that would really go a long way with me. And he went back, and this is before, I don't know, might have been microfish, I don't know what it was. It sure wasn't the current technology, but microfish, whatever it was to get photocopies. The next day, Forche came into my office with a stack of papers that high, and it was the complete CCNRs. I said, that is amazing. How'd you do that? He said, spent all night kind of figuring it out, and he figured it out. He said, you have my job. You have the work. And uh, that's how it started. And then every project I did from that point on, every one was Nevada title with Forche and Terry Wright and Troy Lockhead and a really great Robbie Magby, just a great group of people at Nevada Title that took good care of us for many, many, many years. So that's how he and I got started. And then it went from there to other things. So his version is very similar, okay. except for, I, if I'm recalling right, he said he came back that afternoon, not quite the next day. Okay. But been, those are just details. And, and it might have been that afternoon. That's so but then funny. We, he and I really bonded. Then after that, we, <laughs> well, we did a lot together. We started running together. We ran thousands of miles together. I'd run with Forche, and he's got such a great bunch of stories from his background. We'd be 10 miles out of town. He started telling me stories that make me laugh so hard. I used to have a hard time <laughs> continuing the run. But we ran, and then we ran another marathons together. And, uh, uh, play golf together, and then, um, then I much later down the road, I forgot what year it was. Oh boy, that would have been maybe 1991. Um, I had an opportunity to build a big apartment project at Tropicana and Lindell, by off just near Decatur, and uh, big property that was owned by a fellow named Al Abrams here in town, 55 acres. And Al came to me and said, "Would you like to work with me on this project?" And I said. I'd love to. Let's figure out a joint venture. So we figured out a joint venture for the first phase, and I hired Mike. I asked Mike to come and work for me, actually, as the project manager. So he really he led the way for me. Mike brought me the entire team, brought me the architect, the contractors, and a whole range of government entitlement potential activity. And he ran that project for me very successfully in phase one. And then we did phase two, and that was an 840-unit big apartment project. And that was, again, Mike Forche all the way that led the way for me. And out of that came the purchase of that project by a company called Con-Am Management in San Diego. They bought the project, and then along with that came the opportunity to build the Meridian at the, uh, in, the, in the Hughes Center. And uh, You Mike, did that too, the Meridian? Sorry, I did the Meridian, and Mike helped me. Mike was my project manager on the Meridian. Mm -hmm. He ran that project for us. That was also a successful project, still is today, one of the better leading, you know, city center kind of multifamily projects, now a 
condominium project. And then after that project, we then went to Florida, and Mike also was my project manager there and built a big project for me in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida, called Miraflores. And both those projects, by the way, Meridian and Miraflores, the same year, I believe, won the Site Plan of the Year Award for their use of the land. And that, those are two really successful projects. I have to projects. change your bio to award-winning developer. Yeah, we had a couple of those. We won a bunch of those awards over the years. Yeah, Renaissance Office Park was a... One of the Golden Globe Awards as well, but that's not the reason for those. Pro- these, I just wanted to do the best I could do under the best of circumstances and try to bring the best possible assets to the community wherever wherever we worked. So, those were great projects, and Forche played a big role in that. And to this day, we're still good friends. And then down the road, when I was trying to generate capital to do more projects, I asked Mike to if he would he was single to go to Morocco to Monte Carlo and try to scout up some possible investments because we had some relationships with different people in Europe, mostly in Italy. And Mike went to Morocco for me. And uh, one day, Sonia and I drove down from Munich to Morocco. Great Forche story, man. And uh, (laughs) Forche's, everybody loves Forche. He knows everybody in town. Everybody loves him. Both ways. It's a two-way street with Forche. What he says, you can take you can take it to the bank. So I'm in Morocco, I'm in Monte Carlo, and looking around, I see a guy walking down the street with full-on leather gear, leather pants, leather jacket, leather vest, <laughs> Fauché, and people yelling out, Fauché, Fauché, on the street, Como va tu, Fauché, Como va tu? And he, he waved everybody, you know, because he knew them all, man. So that's my great Fauché story of Monte Carlo. I wonder if he has a picture of him with that outfit on still. <laughs> probably got, probably, probably some pictures of him around someplace. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you brought up Renaissance a bunch, and I did have it on yeah. there because I wanted to talk with you about it. Before we get into that, though, I want to go sure. back to earlier you talked sure. about business trip to Greece and Israel, right? which was significant. So I wrote it down to circle back to. Okay, sure. My first business trip was from London to Greece. My first business trip was I, I got hired in this company's life insurance company. And within a matter of days, I'm the, one of the assistant general counsels in this company. The general counsel came to me and said, we are negotiating a reinsurance treaty in Holland with a Dutch insurance company. We want you to go represent us in Holland for this reinsurance treaty discussion. I talked to myself. I don't even know what a reinsurance treaty is. So I went that weekend. You can't down, Google it at that time either, no, can you? Google, no, I went down to the law <laughs> library. I turned that guy off. I went down to the law library in London and I researched reinsurance. So I got a little basic understanding of what reinsurance was. And off I went to Holland and I played a role with this company. Didn't play much of a role, but at least I was there representing this company's interest in this reinsurance. And it worked out great. I had people around me that were really sophisticated in the insurance world. And I was a lawyer, so I was kind of just helping the conversation go. And again, I learned how to just talk to people without knowing necessarily the substance of what I was even discussing, just learning as I went. You know, to- totally a, a de novo kind of an experience for me. But that was my first trip. Came what is back. reinsurance before you move on from this? What, is, what is reinsurance? It's just ta- it's, 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 it's taking the liability from the insurance policy and, and passing it on to the, another level. So okay. you can reduce, your, you can reduce your, your exposure by having other companies behind you kind of carry the insurance that you, you've written on the face. You want to be able to have it, have it off. Like have, same thing in, in sports betting, by the way. You want to be able to have it off to somebody else that takes some of the risk with you. Got that, it. Was, that was the reinsurance program. Then my next big trip was to Greece to work on a mutual fund insurance complex. complex. And 
I'll never forget flying to Greece, and I thought, I don't know one word of Greek. What am I going to do when I get here? Because back then, today in Europe, everybody speaks English. It's the lingua franca of the world. But back then, that wasn't so obvious. So I'll never forget getting off the plane and thinking, well, how am I even going to go to a hotel? Anyway, I found a thing called a taxi, spelled the same way. So I knew that was at least I could get myself to the hotel. And that was my my Greek business trip, was just finding the way to navigate through the, the language experience. Um, also, fun trip and successful. Um, I did many trips for this company, by the way. I went to Panama and Curaçao and Luxembourg, where there were all these different tax havens. And that's part of the this European style of business, was to find the best possible legal tax havens for business. So... I started to learn quickly as I was going through the process. In 1968, I was asked to go to Israel to work on a mutual fund insurance um, program in Israel. And that was a huge event for me because that was right after the 67 war. And Israel had basically had an amazing experience against its neighbors. And uh, today, flash forward to 2023, we're back into that discussion again in a much more critical way. I don't want to necessarily get into that right now, but 68, it was a definitely a high-energy world in Israel. And one of the things I saw when I was there, Chaim, was I went to the top of the the border between, Le- between Jordan, Lebanon, Jordan, and Israel. I looked down pretty much an engineered straight line down the Jordan River, and I saw all green to the west, which was Israel, and all brown to the east, which was Jordan. And I thought to myself then, there's going to be a problem here, folks. There's going to be resentment and jealousy and anger from the neighbors because what Israel did to, to that, to, what the Israelis did when they came from the Middle East and from North Africa, because most of Israel is basically from the, Iraq and Iran, Middle Eastern. Half the countries, I'm sure you know, this is from the Middle East and North Africa. The other half comes from all over the world. Um, but I thought there's going to be a problem here because there's going to be some resentment and jealousy from the Arab community that this Israeli group, mostly Jews, many Arabs as well, 20% or so, have created this paradise in Israel and no one's paying attention to the other side of the of the line. And that was much on my mind in 1968 and still sticks with me today in 2023. Because what Israel has done in that country, and I go there quite often on business, is st- stunning what's happened in that country. And there needed to be and still needs to be significant cooperation between the right-thinking people in the Arab community and the right-thinking people. I don't mean the right and left in terms of political. I mean the people that are thinking correctly about the future. Mm-hmm. There needs to be much more of an alliance of people that really care about each other and their families and their children, and they want to be able to have successful lives and have health and wealth, and that could happen if people can find a way to find to get along. But that's going to be that's the challenge of today and down the road now. But it was an amazing trip for me in 68. And one of the funny experiences there was there was a, a the show Fiddler on the Roof was real popular then. And um, I went to a big function with the IOS people and the government people and a big gala event and a big hall in Tel Aviv. And I didn't know anybody there except my lawyer was there in the background, the guy that I was working with there. Um, but Topol, T-O-P-O-L, Topol was the star of Fiddler on the Roof. And uh, pretty much everybody's walking from the reception area into the dining room, and I'm by myself way on one side of the room, and the other side of the room is this topple guy. And he yells out to me in that booming voice of his, what are you doing over there? And I said, well, I don't know anybody here. He come over here with me, he said. So <laughs> put me his, put his arm around me and took me and had dinner with me that night. So 
It was a, a way to get myself into the <laughs> 12 Paul Israeli community. Fun, fun, What a nice fun. guy to reach out to you like to- that. Totally, exactly, yeah. Well, thanks for circling back on that. Sure. Um, let's go into the takeaways portion of this, and there's, there's plenty here that we can get into. Uh, so Renaissance office on Eastern and Tropicana. So I started interacting with this property probably in high school. I'm trying to think. Uh, I was very involved in the organizations that the Jewish Federation sponsored, like BBYO and whatnot. And I don't know what time they became a tenant there. I don't know if you remember, if you're still on the property or not. I don't remember the time. I know you became a a, a federation was a tenant. I was on the federation board, Mm -hmm. unrelated to that activity, and the federation took a space in that office park. I know that. I don't know the dates, though. But I don't either, but that, that's... 80s, 90s. So how I, as a you know, born and raised here in Las Vegas, come to interact with this property is that was one of the ways. So you developed this in 1981. No, 79, I started the development. Okay. That's an interesting story for you because um, 79, I had I met, I, I was doing some apartment, pro- I had a previous career, doing apartment projects and some small centers, and, and I met an architect from... From Orange, from Orange City of Orange in, in California, named Bill Bigelow, and Bill was a real creative, modern thinking, contemporary, smart develop, uh, architect, and he did, helped me develop some really cool, modern kind of contemporary looks. And we did we designed Renaissance East Shopping Center, and that was LPA and Bill Bigelow that helped me put that together. And so, sometime in '79, we're well underway with the project. Anchor tenant in place, Skaggs Alpha Beta was my anchor tenant, and I had all kinds of tenants. Read more bookstore, had sneakers restaurant, had a great full 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 house. Um, and I don't remember the date. Paul Volker would have remembered the date because he set the stage. Sometime in '79, we're in the middle of this development. The interest rates went from nine percent then the, the the rate of choice to twenty two percent from one day to the next with the huge inflation program, inflation going on in the U.S. and the Fed's interest in cutting inflation radically. So it ratcheted up real quickly. So from 9% to... 9 to 22. To 22. Unbelievable. And I was banking with Crocker Bank in L.A. and and San Francisco. That was the lender on the project. And they came to me and they said, you know, we're sorry, we can't help this. This is the rate of choice now. So you're going to go from your construction loan goes from 9% to 22%. And that was devastating. And Larry and I, Larry Larkin and I, had acquired a property a couple of years before that um, and sold it to Party Homes for a pretty hefty number. My first real big transaction here on a land sale. And we had all that cash in the bank and all that cash and everything else we could generate went to paying that huge new construction interest bogey on our backs. So it was a huge challenge. We finished the project. Very successful. I ended up having Sneakers. Remember Sneakers Restaurant there? I don't. Sneakers was like the hot burger joint in town for years where the rebels would come and play Papa Shot against the guys that ran the restaurant. And the guys that ran the restaurant would beat the rebel basketball team in Papa Shot. That was a fun thing to watch. Um, that project was a big success. And I ended up selling it to, uh, down the road, Larry and I sold that to um, Belcor in Chicago. I think that was the company that bought it. And Belcor, there was a fellow named Rex Lewis that represented Belcor. And Rex ended up coming to work for me. Down the road, that was another transition that occurred out of that Renaissance East project. And out of that project came, we formed a bank, Continental National Bank. We formed with a bunch of my friends here in town. That was the first real sit-down business-oriented bank. 
I built the headquarters for it on that on the eastern side of that uh, of that uh, development. I also had that sneakers was a a, a restaurant that had uh, slot machines in it. It was kind of a tavern license, so that was my start in the tavern business as well. Um, and uh, it was full, great center. And we sold it off to Belcor. And then after we sold it, then we went to, um, I'm not quite sure the exact sequence, we then ended up buying from Bill Piccoli. We bought the corner of Flamingo and Decatur. That was like another 15-acre corner. That's the That would be the southwest corner and built Renaissance Center West there. Mm-hmm. And that was another wonderful project for me. And I had a really great story there because... At that time, just before we, we bought the center, we bought the property, but there was no overpass yet between going over the freeway and the railroad tracks going west on Flamingo. And uh, Harry Reid and a team put together a program to build that overpass. And uh, to Harry's credit and to our credit, we ended up having access to West Flamingo. And then, of course, it opened up all the development on West Flamingo. And that really, really launched that Renaissance West project. And that's where I had... Um, Designed a pretty significant project again, a couple hundred thousand square feet of retail. By the way, on that Renaissance East project, Bob and Sarah and his partner Dick Wade had Ricardo's restaurant mm-hmm. at the corner. That I remember. Trop and Easter, and Bob and I are still very close friends. And then Bob also took with his partner Dick the corner of Flamingo and Decatur. The second Ricardo's mm-hmm. was there. Uh, probably one of my highlights of this whole development world was having Bob and Sarah as my tenant. Became very good friends, terrific tenant. Wonderful human being, and just a really great way of of, um, of aligning myself with the restaurant tenant in that shopping center. But the other interesting part of that Renaissance West Center was this is a huge story for me. I haven't really thought through very carefully today, anyway, but I will. Um, I had a Smith's Food King was going into the fifty five thousand foot grocery grocery um, allocation space. Uh, and I was in Austria, and I got a phone call from somebody saying that he, the owner of the company was sick, uh, and we're going to they were going to pull their their commitment. So they pulled their commitment, and so now I have an empty space, um, fifty five thousand foot space, and we're on the way of building the project. And I had a banker in uh, a savings and loan banker that was helping me manage this financing side of it, and, and that's another story because in that was a. My now partner, Jane Flynn, was my early analyst. We'll come back to Jane because she's still my really close friend and partner in many projects today. But Jane was my analyst there. I'm sure she was scratching her head, too, thinking, now, what's Michael going to do now? And somebody, Matt Doherty, broke, you know Matt? Mm. I'm not sure he's still in town. Matt Doherty, and his, he had a woman partner in the real estate business, introduced me to a company called Fleming Foods. And Fleming Foods had a concept called Food for Less, and I didn't know what that was. So I needed a tenant. So food for, Fleming's had a, 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 an office, a, a, a division in Salt Lake City. So I went to Salt Lake City, and I met with the fellow that ran that venture for Fleming's called Byron Lovell. And Byron said, I, I was listening to a presentation between Byron Lovell and some lawyers and doctors of Salt Lake City to get them to help fund the equity for this grocery store. Flemings would provide the food and provide the concept for running it, the food for less warehouse concept, and the investors would then be the equity behind the deal. And I listened to the whole conversation and uh, thought, interesting, maybe I've got a prospect for a tenant here. A couple weeks later, I get a phone call from Byron Lovell, and he said, my investor group fell out. Mm. What should I do? I said, without even calling Larry, who was a wonderful human being and a great partner and the guy that really got me started, 
I, I said, we'll do it. And he said, you'll do it? I said, yeah, we'll take on the equity investment. So I hung up from Byron. I said, I'll come up to sea in Salt Lake City. So I called Larry and I said, Larry, we're in the grocery business. He said, what? So you took on the equity investment in the operation of this grocery right. business. And I'm, I imagine you did that just from hearing the conversation and the merits of, the, of what you thought the business would do, not to get them to be a tenant in the shopping center. Totally to get the tenant. I needed, I needed, it was? I needed, I, needed, I needed a tenant. I needed a tenant. And the, and the interesting irony is... Oh, that's risky. And during, the, and during the Depression, my grandmother had a 8,000 square foot grocery store in Bay City, Michigan. I'm sure she, and she gave food away during the Depression. I don't know if she made any money, but I'm sure she was rolling over in her grave to think now her grandson's going into a 55,000 square foot grocery store only because he needs a tenant. And Flemings ran it. And Flemings put this, the group together to, to run the store, kind of. But we ended up doing a backup plan later, once I learned how to run a little bit of the business. But I'm a real estate developer, lawyer, not with a grandmother <laughs> in groceries, but that's about all well, I it's knew. it's in your blood, I guess. It's in my blood. <laughs> my, in my blood was taking advantage of opportunities. That's my blood. Mm -hmm. And this is one that I thought, I'm going to take a good chance at this one. So we built a food for less. I went back to Salt Lake City, and he wasn't sure I really wanted to do it. So he put me in the banana room to have this negotiation. And the banana room is probably 30 below zero, freezing. And he's talking to me real fast about this food for less concept. And I'm agreeing to everything he said. So came out of the banana room, signed the deal. <laughs> off I went back to Las Vegas, and we built the grocery store. And uh, I got into it. We hired a team to kind of manage our side of it to make sure that the Fleming's guys were running the prop, running the project appropriately. We could just do a shadow work on their financial aspects of it. And I got to know Lou Fally. And Lou Fally from Topeka, Kansas, who originated the concept of Food for Less, was called Fally's Food for Less. He had licensed this to Fleming Companies, which was then the largest food wholesaler in the country based in either Tulsa or Oklahoma City. Where was the rodeo before it came here? Oklahoma City? Yeah. Um, he, he, he and I became good friends. He thought I reminded him of somebody he knew in, in his background. Older guy, and he would come back and forth between Las, come to Las Vegas and see me. He was a crazy golfer. He'd this is an unusual guy in a grocery. He would close his grocery business on Wednesdays to play golf. Nobody does that in the grocery business, but Lou did that. So he and I would play golf together. And he'd come out to see me, and he'd show me how to work the whole wall of values and food for less and, and the concept of, of bagging your own groceries and stripped down tenant improvements. And he became good friends with me and we became really pals. I'm a younger guy. He's an older guy. And I really, he adopted me and I adopted him. One of those loss of my father created all these older mm. guys that became like connected to me over the years. And he was one of them, not a father, but a father figure, sort of a fellow, a great, great guy. And, uh, we ran the business, and the business was opened up the doors. It was hugely successful. Oh, that was a shock, man. So, because I, I didn't know how successful it would be, but there were lines. Remember that when it opened up that store? That was probably I was born in '80, so it was probably yeah, right, yeah, right as I was a kid. Yeah, that would have been uh, 80, 80, 85, 86. Just a little kid. Yeah. Um, I mean, growing up here, I remember food for less. Yeah, lines out the door um, because the prices was the price the pricing was appropriately lower than any place, any place else in the in the neighborhood shopping center grocery world. 
Um, so it was all about gross revenues, and then little net would grow with the gross revenues being as, as significant as they were. And uh, as a result of that one success, Flemings came to me and said, we want another store in Las Vegas. Would you consider doing that? And I said, sure. So I then ended up buying the corner of Flamingo and Pecos on the east side of mm-hmm. town. And that was also an anchored food for less. So you bought the so, existing property there? Sorry? You bought that as an existing property? Bought that as a, 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 a vacant piece of property. It was okay. It was, it was land and you, you developed it. Was, it. Yeah. Okay. We built a couple hundred thousand square foot center on, on Flamingo and mm-hmm. Pecos. Those centers that were the premier centers of the time, now they're all going through real neighborhood challenges. Renaissance right. West is still doing okay at Decatur and Flamingo. Trop and Eastern struggles for whatever that demographic is. Flamingo and Pecos, Renaissance 3 struggle. But then they were really successful ventures for us and for Vista and family and friends. And uh, then the Flemings came to me and said, we'd like you to do one more. Would you consider going to Provo, Utah to do a Food for Less store in Provo, Utah? So I said, sure, I'll consider that. So I went to Provo, Utah, and I met a really great young guy named Rich Hawes, who was a developer. And we went to Provo, and another piece of property that was vacant, and we built a Food for Less there and built a big center there called Plum Tree Shopping Center, and Rich and I were off and running. We had now, I had three Food for Lessers and three centers that were anchored by Food for Lessers, and they were all doing extremely well. And uh, I was really over my head, for sure, because I was doing the real estate side. We had property management. We had this grocery company, and I had a whole, like I said, a whole shadow group of accountants kind of managing, watching how the Food for Less world was working. Interesting story about that, too. I had a manager, I'm not going to mention his name, but a Food for Less manager in Las Vegas in the first store at Flamingo and Decatur. And our, whatever our prices were, I'm just going to make up a number of 29 cents for a can of corn um, would have been a price that would have been competitive with a 32 cent can of corn at Smith's or Albertsons. And because we were doing so well, my manager started raising the prices somewhat. We were doing big numbers, $750,000, $800,000 a week in grocery sales, big numbers. And uh, he started raising, creeping up the prices. Uh, so it went from, I'm going to make up that number again, from 29 cents, it might have gone to 31, 32 cents a can. And guess what? The customers saw it. The customers figured that out. And business started to slowly mm-hmm. de- decrease. And didn't plummet, but it went down slowly. So it went down from 750, say, a week, down to 650, down to 620, down to 580. And I thought, this is not working for me. So... I figured out what he had done with some friends helping me as consultants to this business. And we ended up terminating that relationship and brought our own management in. But I could tell that I was really over my head in how to run a grocery company of that magnitude. And along the way, along came Ron and Joe Burkle came to see me. And Ron and Joe Burkle had really been heavily involved in grocery in California. Um, they were trying to buy a company in California. It didn't turn out for them. And uh, they suggested to me, wisely, why don't we run them and you build them? And we formed a venture. And uh, we then built one and we built together. We went back to Fleming's. We built one in Victorville, Corona, Rialto. We had a few different food for less centers that we built. And finally, Fleming's came to me and said, we don't like the Burkles because they're not they're conventional grocers. We don't think they really understand the warehouse business, which they did because Ron Burkles is as smart as it gets in terms of financial and grocery operations. Nobody better in the world than Ron Burkle in that, in that analysis and that venture. He'd been doing that with his dad since he was a young kid and really knew it well, and he's a hugely successful guy now in the 
world of all those things he does, like in the show business world and entertainment world and f- producing and film. But he was absolute magnificent when it came to the grocery world. And uh, so we had a venture started. And so we, we, we sat down together and figured out, let's maybe consider how to maybe buy the company. So I went back to Topeka to, to meet with Lou and uh, to talk about buying the company because Ron and I had a plan how much we could pay. We did the analysis and figured out what the, we could offer in a purchase. Um, and then Lou said, come with me to Harlingen, Texas. So he put, we, we drove down or flew down to where his winter home was in Harlingen, Texas. And we're playing golf on his golf course. And we got down to like the fourth or fifth hole right by his home. And he said, Mike, what are you, what are you doing here? I said, Lou, Ron and I would like to buy your company. He said, oh, Mike, he said. People have been trying to buy my company for 40 years. Sam Walton's trying to buy my company. This guy's trying to buy my company, and I don't want to sell. But let me go inside. So he left the golf course. He went inside his home. I sit down on a bench. There's no phones to refer to. I'm just looking at the golf course, probably chipping a little bit, waiting for Lou to come out, thinking he's going to kick me out of this town and tell me to go back home to Las Vegas. And he came outside with a a big uh, manila envelope and on it were like, I don't know, 50 or 60 points he'd written down and handwritten what he wanted if he were to sell the company. And I went down every point with him, even to the bottom line, which is the price. I said, we agree on every point. He said, you do? I said, we agree on every point. So we had an acquisition un- un- underway. So um, Ron and I went back to Topeka and uh, met with Lou in Topeka. And uh, Lou then called Flemings. Flemings had been trying to buy it. Walton had been trying to, Sam Walton had 18 Food for Less stores in Arkansas based in Bentonville. So he already had the Food for Less concept underway. And he had a young fellow named Sam Phillips, might have been his name, that might have been related to Sam somehow. I'm not quite sure what the relationship was, but Sam was running these grocery stores real successfully. Um, And uh, Lou, Lou called Fleming Companies, the chairman of the, Dick Harrison, chairman of the board, and Dean Wearies, pretty sure it was Oklahoma City. And they flew, he said, fly your plane up here, pick up, pick me up. I want to come down and talk to you. So they flew their plane up. So Lou and I and Ron got on the plane together and we flew down to Oklahoma City to the FBO there. And up comes a limo with Dean Wearies, president, and Dick Harrison, chairman of the board, to meet their honored guest, Lou Fally. And along comes Mike Saltman and Ron Burkle. And they look quizzically, what are you, what, what are you two doing here? And Lou said, don't say anything. So we got in the car and drove to their headquarters. Beautiful, big. This this was the food wholesaler in the in the country, maybe the world at the time. I don't no longer. I'm not sure what even happened to Flemings over the year. But then in '86, '87, they were the premier provider of wholesale food. And we went to their boardroom, and uh, they looked real quizzical. Dean and Dick, what are Mike and Ron doing here? Because they knew me, of course, from my three stores that I had and four or five that we developed when Ron and I were together. And uh, they said, what you? and Lou said, fellas, I've decided to sell my company to Mike and Ron. And they said, what? Probably didn't say it quite like that. But their eyes, <laughs> their faces, their jaws dropped. And uh, we ended up buying the company. And then we negotiated a new licensing agreement with Flemings, and we ended up having food for less. And so that food, and then went back to Topeka and... Um, Ron's dad, Joe, was a really, really successful grocer, really tough and smart and a, just a great human being. And he ran our business. He ran the Fally's business for us in Topeka. And um, then 
Sam Walton and, and uh, Walmart came to Topeka and built a 220,000 square foot. This is a lesson for everybody. They built a 220,000 square foot super center in Topeka with 50,000 feet of groceries. And, Ron, and Joe Burkle basically drove them out of business. Joe was so good at the business, he was able to undercut their pricing. He was able to provide better service. And, and, and Walmart closed the business, shut the doors, and went back to Bentonville and reinvented the grocery business. And today, all these years later, Walmart is the largest grocer in the world. So they figured it out real quickly after that episode in Topeka and became a really huge major part of the grocery world. And in the meantime, then Ron took us on to different levels. Then Ron engineered the purchase of Ralph's and Boys Markets in California and QFC in Washington and Fred Meyer in Oregon and Smith's Food King and put a whole bunch of groups together. And then we were the eastern, we were the western part of the U.S. major dominant grocery company. And then Ron, to his credit, was able to engineer a transaction where Kroger ended up buying, buying the whole transaction, buying the whole business. So Kroger today started off with our Food for Less in Las Vegas and engineered itself all the way to Cincinnati, Ohio, where now Kroger is one of the second largest grocery company in the world. And that was in the country. And that was Ron's um, Ron's total brilliance to put that together. And I went along for the ride. Here I am thinking I'm talking to a real estate developer. I didn't know I was talking to a grocery magnate. Exactly. Just by default, but for sure. But definitely I got the benefit of it. Wow. Uh, The risk paid off, I guess. Totally. Yeah. So Lou wrote down 50 items. Yes. And you said yes to all of them. Every one of them. Why didn't you try to negotiate? They were all, I, I knew, I knew what they all, I knew what they were, it was like, I want a job for my son. I want a country club membership. I want you to help support Washburn University, which is a, his Topeka University. All these little, I want my wife to have this position. He had a whole lot of family issues in there. And I, each, each one of them were easily identifiable and achievable. So it didn't become a negotiation. It was more of a and, acceptance. And the pricing was the right pricing for us. And that was really the key to the transaction. So there's two, two kinds of things happening here, I think. First, the lesson here is um, it's not always good to negotiate. Negotiating for the sake of negotiating right. doesn't pay off right. or sometimes doesn't pay off. The other thing, it sounds more like he'd written out a succession plan as opposed to a sale. Right. Like if it was Walton or one of these other parties, maybe right. it's a different approach that he takes. Right. Is that I think kind of thinking accurate. back? Yeah, was that yeah, yeah. was he, that what he was doing? He, he liked me. He liked us. He knew we were serious. We had the money to buy the company and he was ready to do ready to. He, I'm sure he was ready to move on with his life as well. Uh, I think that's probably what he was in his mind. He could have gotten more probably from probably the, could have gotten more from the Flemings folks and all that. Yeah. yeah but that was not what he was doing. No, no. He wanted and, he, and we had such a great relationship that I think he felt that we were for sure sincere and really working hard at it. And we had access to capital and uh, he went along with it and we became good friends during and afterwards. It was a really great transaction. You mentioned the whole father figure kind of relationship. Exactly. We played golf one day at the country club, and I think we started this conversation. I said, I want to, after Ron and I had some conversation about the acquisition, I was playing golf with Lou in Las Vegas, and I said, I want to come back and see you to talk about something. That's when I ended up going to Topeka, and then Harlingen, Texas thing all happened as a result of that 13th hole at the Las Vegas country club. Yeah. Wow. Great story. Great family. I'm, uh, I'm remembering, so my father-in-law, Neville Pockroy, as you, you know him. Of course. I love your father We um can't remember what it was exactly, but maybe it was a partner of his, maybe longtime partner passed away and his wife now had 
whatever it was, the interest to the partnership. And he would have to buy her out or compensate her for it or something to that effect. And you go through the, the deal terms. And if you're negotiating tough, you present it one way. And I remember him saying, this is something I'm going to go soft on. Which I put me on my heels for a second. And, you know, everything you learn about negotiating, it's not, you never negotiate like that. It goes soft and give right. more. And, right. But it was really to honor the partnership that he had and, and not something he's going to try to squeeze every last drop out of. I'm not a squeezer. I, I have an expectation of what I expect in a project in terms of reward and success. And by the way, I never think about money when I'm doing a project ever. I think about how to do the best possible development I can do, the best, put my best foot forward, provide the, provide the best opportunity for tenants that have success of their own. And then out of that generation of, of looking for success of the venture, if you're, if you're good at what you do, then the money will follow. It doesn't always, but that's usually my, that's my style. I don't ever do a, a project to, on the, with the money in my mind, with a reward in my mind. It's, it's out there, mm-hmm. but I don't think about it as, as not my primary goal. And interesting about negotiation also was another one of those similar ones was I when I was doing the deal with the Abrams family for the Renaissance Villas project at Trop and Decatur. He wanted me to, he wanted me to come down to see his lawyer in L.A., which I did. And his lawyer had points. His lawyer had a whole series of points he wanted for his client, Mr. Abrams. And I didn't agree to any of them, not one. I didn't need to do the deal. I wanted to do it because it looked like a really exciting project. And it's in the middle of nowhere. Um, nowhere then. The Flamingo, I mean, the Trop Indicator was like nowhere. I'll tell you that little sidebar mm-hmm. story in a second, too. And uh, I didn't agree. I forgot his lawyer's name. Almost had it. Murray something. Anyway, he had like seven or eight points on a legal pad. I didn't agree to any one of his points. Whatever they were, I didn't agree with them. Not out of principle. I just didn't agree with the principle, the item of each item. I didn't agree with each item that he was trying to get me to accept. And Al went along with it, and we had a hugely successful project. So um, sometimes you have to go soft if you if you, if you have the big picture in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but that project, interestingly enough, I had a really great advertising guy named Tom named Joe Merica. Remember that name before your time? Joe was a really terrific young guy, real bright. Um, and I had him as my advertising agent. And I said, Joe, I got this property we're building called Renaissance Villas. It's going to be a super Cliff Wong, architecturally designed, Mike Forche project managed development for me. I forgot the first phase might have been three or 400 units. And I said, what am I going to do? It's out in the middle of nowhere. I'm not even, Trap was probably paved, but nothing else was paved around there. And so Joe came up with an idea, a big sign, and it said, Live boldly where no man has yet. Live boldly where no man has yet dared live. That was a big sign on the property. Live boldly where no man has yet lived. Yet there lived, and it became a big success. Fully sold out, and it was a huge success. So that was Joe America kind of launching me into the world of vacant property <laughs> development. An observation, something that you and Mike Forche are sort of unique at, is your recall for people's names. I don't know that the majority of people remember people's names like you guys remember their names. It's part of my life. Yeah, I like to, I like, I relate to people well and I like to think I remember people's names. They remember mine. Clearly, clearly you do. I used to take my daughter to with me. I used to take my daughter Sarah with me to some of my projects early in the morning and, and uh, we'd drive around because I'd like to look at my projects in the morning and I'd pick up paper and I would do the things that owners should do, which is taking care of their assets and, 
I would stop in the morning. I would talk to the landscaper and the landscaper's assistant and the guy that was working on mowing, the guy that worked for the landscaper. And Sarah would say to me, Dad, you know all these people? I said, yeah, I talked to all of them because they're all part of our life. They're all helping us in one way or another, and they're all really good people. And that really had a big impact on her. To this day, she talks about that, how I look to take care of people. I knew their names and their families and their backgrounds, and I connect with people, and that really helped me feel really like I'm doing something beneficial to the people that work with me and for me as well as for myself and for my family. And so that's a big part of how I think I am today. Uh, Let's fast forward a bit. I'm a young agent. I'm a few years in the business. Uh, Robin Sivish says to me, you remember Robin? She worked at Vista Group. Of course. Uh, Hey, Haim, you should join this board of this group called Commercial Marketing Group, CMG. And it's exactly what it sounds. It's a marketing group for real estate agents. This is like, you know, the internet was here now and properties were starting to get advertised online, but there was still this group that met in person to talk about what properties they have, the haves, they, the haves and needs of clients to try to put deals together. So the group met at the Las Vegas Country Club mm-hmm. every week. I think it was on a, every Wednesday morning. And so you joined this thing and then Robin said, it'd be good for you to Put yourself forward for the board. So I did that. And then, you know, it's like a you get on the board and then you do a good job. And then Letter. someone says you should consider running for secretary or whatever. And you don't know at the time, but secretary is the first position to president elect to then president. So you say yes to one thing and all of a sudden it's a three, four year commitment. Laddering. Is that what it's called? Yes. Laddering. Yeah. So I didn't know that then, but I experienced okay. it. How old but, are you now? Uh, now I'm 43. Okay. David's age. David's age. Yeah. We were born the same year. Right on. I'm January. What month? Was June. He's June. June. Okay. Yeah. So he has to respect me as his elder. There you go. Right. <laughs> um, so CMG had this thing that they started every year. They would give a, what they called a visionary award. So they'd pick somebody who had a vision for our community and executed on the vision and uh, created something. So you were up mm. as nominated for this award one year. Mm for the work that you were doing for the project that you called Midtown, right. Midtown UNLV was right. it was called, but you declined to be honored. Do you remember this? I do. Tell me the, tell me the story. So you declined because you said, I've not uh, had the vision materialized. So I can't accept an award, a visionary award for a vision that's not yet materialized. But then you said, but what you should do is consider um, honoring Barbara Mack for the Thomas and Max family's contribution for what they have done for UNLV. So I want to ask you your perspective. What did the Thomas and Mac families do for UNLV? You have, first of all, your involvement at UNLV is pretty vast. Uh, what is it? What do you think the Thomas and Mac families did there? And also what was Midtown UNLV and where is that today, if anywhere? What a great story, man. Didn't It didn't come to fruition, so I still don't deserve the visionary award. What I did was open up the box to talk about the future of that part of the community because that's been a kind of a forgotten part. of the, the central part of Las Vegas has been forgotten to a large extent. Commercial Center all the way up Maryland Parkway um, got trumped, if you will, by all the projects that circle the, the, the community, Summerlin and Green Valley and uh, all the Ritter projects around the community that basically took over the development demand. The center core was left alone. I had been spending time. Uh, I got to know Dick Morgan at the uh, Arizona State Law School. Dick became the dean of the UNLV Law School. We became really good friends, still are good friends today. 
Um, and he introduced me to Arizona State. And I went down to Tempe and I saw what Tempe had done for Arizona State to create Mill Avenue as the the um, the retail, energy, restaurant complex that serviced the Arizona State University students, faculty, and, and community. And that really engineered my thought process. And I came back to Las Vegas and thought, Maryland Parkway should be in the same discussion. Maryland Parkway needs to be Mill Avenue. The difference, of course, is that Tempe's a small town. Maryland Parkway's in the county, so the county has a much bigger responsibility. Couldn't quite focus on what was happening like Tempe did with Mill Avenue. But Tom Riley, who was county manager, really got behind the idea. Jacob Snow, who was the head of the RTC, mm-hmm. really got behind the idea. And Carol Harder, then president, got behind the idea. Speaking of which, Carol Harder passed away recently. Yesterday, I think, at UNLV was her... Celebration of life for Carol Harder, my really great friend, passed away, and obviously was her life was celebrated in memorial service yesterday. But she and I became really good friends, and I went back to Wayne State University that same time. And Wayne State University had engineered a project called Midtown Detroit. So I came back to Carol and I said, "Let's have a project around UNLV um, called Downtown Las Vegas." And she said, "How about?" And I told her about Wayne State University. She said, "How about calling it Midtown?" So it was really Carol's name. So I said, what a great idea. So I put a lot of energy and time into trying to get everybody in the community behind doing this Maryland Parkway development. And for one reason or another, it kept floundering, and the market kept going up and down, and I couldn't put it together. And um, I forgot how it all kind of materialized over the period of time. I think I, we sold, then I had Greenspun and American Nevada became my partners in my projects with a guy named Bruce Dyfek that was running the the American Nevada program at the time. They bought an interest in my Campus Village project. We built the Nevada, we built the NSHE, the Nevada System of Higher Education headquarters at Rochelle and Merlin Parkway. We built the, we bought the JMA building at the other side, the north corner of JMA, that JMA property. Sold that off to UNLV. Interesting transaction, by the way. Handshake deal with the then CFO of UNLV. Handshake deal to, to build that project. I'll come back to that if you want to talk about okay. it. That was a really interesting development. We did all these. Pro- I, I built that. Took over the Ross Miller Cancer Center and built the UNLV Police Department there. And we had quite an activity going around UNLV. But whatever the reason, it didn't finally materialize, <clears throat> and uh, so I didn't deserve the Visionary Award. But I got it started, so I get the Starter Award. <laughs> <laughs> and then along came Frank Moretti, and Frank bought mm-hmm. Campus Village from us, and he's tore right. it down. Now it's going to become a great new project for Frank Moretti and. His group, that should be a really successful venture for him. And hopefully they align their interest between Frank's private sector world and UNLV's public sector world. That's always been a challenge because UNLV never really reached out to the community. They always were more within, and that was always a challenge to get them to look outside. Now they're looking outside. After um, Carol, for sure, got that started, the next president's kind of stopped, helped move that forward as well. So UNLV now, then and today, is looking outside the campus, trying to find ways to continue the, the community concept of that Midtown project. And so it will materialize at some point. I'm giving Frank full credit now for the big projects he's built there, and one day it'll become a reality. And guess what? Frank gets the execution award. Perfect. We yeah. get the starter award and Start, the execution award. Starter and execution award. Wasn't, so one of the underpinnings was getting light rail to from... To, to Maryland? Right, Is, am right, I remembering right. that, that was, right? That was a challenge. A huge challenge because Maryland is a major thoroughfare. So Arizona like, State has light rail. I mean, Tempe, Phoenix has light rail. 
So again, my idea was, and I then brought, by the way, I, I hired Neil Giuliano. Neil Giuliano was the mayor of Tempe, Arizona, came up here and worked for me for a number of years to help me kind of move the project along. And he had wonderful ideas of how to transplant Arizona's Phoenix's energy into Las Vegas. And that was part of the light rail concept. And Jacob Snow was behind it. And we did lots of designs for that whole concept. And um, the county went a different direction. The county ended up not going light rail. They ended up going, I haven't finalized this yet, so I'm not quite sure where it's going to turn out. But then that was um, um, T- Tina Quigley was the head mm-hmm. of the RTC and mm-hmm. David Swallow, terrific young guy, still there. They were behind the program as well. And I think they ended up going to a bus rapid transit system up Maryland Parkway, not yet materialized, instead of light rail. But then when I was in Israel... At some mobility conferences, I saw what was going on with with um, uh, uh, UV vehicles that were driverless vehicles, and I thought that's another way to go. So I got together with Michael Sherwood. You know Michael? Michael's the tech senior tech official at the city of Las Vegas. A wonderful possible podcast for you. A really, okay. really smart guy. Probably one of the leading tech figures in the community. And Michael's pushed me really hard to go with this Israeli mobility conference uh, idea of going with with uh, driverless vehicles. And I really pushed the county hard to go that direction. Less expensive, more contemporary, moves people really well. And right now that's still kind of, I think, in the balance. I know it's going to be bus rapid transit being considered. I don't think light rail is any longer. Maybe driverless vehicles will happen. Um, I'm not quite sure what's going to happen. But overall, that whole thing was uh, part of a Tempe, Dick Morgan, Arizona State, Michael Crow. I'll tell you about Michael Crow. Um, bringing Arizona State to UNLV and having the collaboration be successful for, for Las Vegas. I took Carol Harder and a whole bunch of people from UNLV senior staff with my wife, Sonia, down to Tempe to meet Michael Crow, the president of Arizona State University, former, proct- former um, provost at Columbia University, and basically turned Arizona State into an amazingly de- significant development. Tom Riley, by the way, is still much involved with Arizona State after he left here. And Michael had taken his school from, I'm not sure, 25,000 students to a big number, 100, I don't know the number, but a huge number of students at Arizona State. And basically, he helped engineer that whole development around Arizona State, and it's been a huge success for, for, Arizona, for Phoenix and for Tempe. As I was taking Carol down, she said, I'm not sure I really want to go here because Mike, Michael Crow is known to be really aggressive and um, um, extreme and that concerns me. Um, so we went down there and we had a meeting with Michael Crow in his office and he was great. He brought his staff in and talked about development activity and Carol walked out of there two feet off the ground. She said, this is an amazing idea. And I helped develop that relationship between Arizona State and UNLV. And today I think there's still an activity, an uh, action going on between the two of them, at least trying to help UNLV grow and watching what Arizona State's been able to do. That was another one of those great Carol Harder experiences. She was definitely heroic. And she brought in a guy named Jerry Bamadi. And Bamadi probably will maybe see this podcast at some point and put a smile on his face because he and I became really close. And he he was really significant engineering the future, the growth of Las Vegas. And a m- number of projects we did. Every project I did, I did with Jerry Bamadi directly. The, the police station, that was a Jerry Bamadi transaction. Between He was representing UNLV and I represented Vista. Probably not even ANC at the time, but then eventually ANC and Vista aligned interests in that those developments. And then we did the 
the Enchi headquarters was an interesting discussion. Enchi wanted to move their headquarters wherever they, wherever they were, Nevada School of Higher Education, Nevada System of Higher Education. They wanted to move to a new facility. And there was a big competition as to where it should go. There was a big push from some of the regions to go downtown. There was a big push to have them be in, in Reno and Carson City. Anyway, I pushed really hard for the corner of Rochelle and Maryland Parkway. And everybody agreed. It was the right, Bomadi agreed in the University people at UNLV agreed, and the NC people agreed. So ANC and Vista joint ventured that project and built it. But the way we built it was we had a handshake deal with Jerry Bamati. We'll build the project, take our risk to build it, we'll finance it, and we'll build it and do all the interior layout for you with your, your approval as to interior layout. But we won't have a transaction closing until we finish the building, get a certificate of occupancy, and ready to then turn it over. And Jerry said, I agree, and we agree. And guess what? We built the project. The project was built on time, on budget, got it all done, got the CFO, and sat down with Bamadi and worked out a transaction to, for the system to acquire the property. So one of those wonderful So why why not? put all that on paper and have an agreement up front as to the sequencing and how it would all go. We could probably help avoid prevailing wage by doing this project privately without having to go through a, uh, a state a state uh, allocation for the property. So if they that have, might have been, that might have been the motivation. Okay. That was a big And number. you once again have to trust but, trust but, that it's going to work but, out. All but trust. I trusted him, he trusted me. I would have issues going on where I wanted to make some changes. I was one by the then the Barrick Museum one day. I was on the campus a lot, and it looked shoddy, and they were trying to move the Barrick Museum into an art facility to an art gallery or an art head, an art program in the, on the campus, and the facade was falling apart, and it looked terrible, and it was residue and stuff all over the place in front of the building, and I called Bamadi, and I said, Jerry, can you help generate some money just to fix the facade, clean up the building, and get it ready for the art museum. And he said, you, you got it. So he put, he found the money. They cleaned up the building. It became the UNLV Art um, Museum. No one knows about that story today, just Bamadi and me. But that's where it is, Chaim. Wow. Yeah. One of those many stories around UNLV's campus trying to help out the community. So, um, Not always successful, but trying to help out. The thought I had is, so as a developer at your core business, it sounds like you engaged in some extracurriculars, you know, creating a relationship between ASU and UNLV. That doesn't just happen overnight. There's a lot of energy and effort and time and right. probably cost on your part to do that. Why do all those things? Why not just worry about the properties that you're developing, do a good job, good project, keep going on to the next one? Why keep kind of engaging and bringing people into the fold and creating bridges yeah, those, are, those are really great questions. I think about them a lot, but I just do them automatically. I love connecting quality to quality. There's something about the ability to bring people together that I find really engaging to me, and it really helps my just my own sense of fairness in the world. So not, it's not a financial issue. Mm-hmm. It's a really great question. I think about it a lot. I don't think about it a lot. I just do it a lot. Um, if I find something that I can match up one person to another person, I still do that significantly in my life. But bring good people together to try to find some kind of a synergy that may benefit somebody down the road. So it's a really, really great question. All the pro bono stuff that I've done over the years, I didn't have to do any of that, but I was the chairman of the Nevada School of the Arts. Um, all these things I did try to help the community. Um, you mentioned the Jewish Federation. Jewish, I, I also helped 
put, I was the chairman of the, ready for this, the McCarran Art Advisory Board. What is that? That was when we first had, we were, the project was being built by TR, TRA Consultant, was the architect on the big expansion of McCarran Airport. The art program was in the cards. John Solomon was the airport director. Thalia Dondera was the commissioner. I think was Thalia in charge of that whole area. It was in her district. She came to me, and I went, it was me, Roger Thomas, Elaine Wynn, Steve Molaski, Robin Greenspun. I'm leaving out some names. And we put together a committee, and we ended up generating $500,000 through a sign that the MGM had on one of the escalator drops that generated $500,000 of income for the airport authority, for the county. And I said, we need to have that money allocated to buying public art. And we had a series of great meetings with John Solomon and his airport people. And a lot of those people that worked at the airport, I ended up knowing Jacob Snow was there, Curtis uh, Curtis Miles was there. People that I knew later on in other parts of their career were at the airport at the time. We be, all became friends. And it was all totally above board. And it was just the ability to try to help enhance the, the, the airport experience. So we ended up buying some really terrific art, not the least of which is the piece that Louis Jimenez, Louis Jimenez did. As you drive into the airport going to the departure area, there's this Mexican cowboy on a horseback. Can you picture that piece of sculpture? Mm-hmm. It's called Vaquero, done by Luis Jimenez. That was the biggest piece, and that piece is really a very priceless piece still on the airport property. And I've been trying to get the airport people to keep that, prop, to keep that sculpture enhanced and maintained because it's worth a lot of money today. And it was part of the airport acquisitions program. And it was just a lot of fun to do that one. And uh, there's no, there's no, there's no, yeah, I was going to say, you're not getting paid for that. Just community. It's all about trying to help. Listen, I and many, many others in this town have tried over the years and still do to help enhance this Las Vegas living experience. I'm just one small cog in that very large wheel of trying to help the community grow and be prosperous. It was fun. I, I think it's great. It's I helped uh, also. I was on the I was on the board that helped design the um, who did that one for us. Fentress Architects from Denver did the Clark County Government Center. I still think one of the best buildings in the community is the Clark County Government Center. It was pretty much the same group that did the McCarran. The one that's across from the outlet malls. Yes. Yeah. The same group probably that did the airport did the. Uh, the, the government center. And again, that was probably Thalia Dondero. And at one point, I was asked to take over the state um, Senate seat, district seat 10 when Jim Bilbray stepped down as the uh, the uh, state senator to become a, a congressman. And I was asked by the, by the commission to take over that position, the state senate position didn't come to fruition because I didn't get along with some of the people on the commission that wanted to go a different direction with legislation that was coming up. And I didn't, I couldn't agree. I don't want to get into the detail, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't a pretty picture, but that would have been another great opportunity to have one session without having to run for office. Because I've always been interested in politics to be in the state Senate (laughs) and not have to run for office. Just not campaigning. No, not campaigning. I share that sentiment. Um, I think it was in the times of the global great recession. So you mentioned the tavern business. So uh, again, I'm a young agent, um, Connie Gamble, who used to work with you also, we uh, hired her daughter, Gina on our team and she's still here. No, she's Uh not here. Uh, I think she's a teacher somewhere if I'm Uh not mistaken. Great. 
Great stories. But uh, we got a call from a guy who wanted to buy some taverns. And this is a time when nobody's buying anything. And you own some. So we called you. We called a couple others. And we picked this guy up at the airport, came with a backpack, asked all the right questions. Uh, we toured him around. He'd go into the facilities and inspect the facilities and knew what he was looking at and looking for. I mean, you know, you walk through a commercial property and you see these pipes and things on the wall and whatnot. And the majority of people will just, they don't know what they're looking at. There's a lot. I still don't know what I'm looking at, but this guy knew what he was looking at. We talked to him about his background and um, restaurants. And he, I don't remember the guy's name. It was, it was a weird deal. We probably went to two or three of your doc holidays. Yeah. Your doc holidays. I mean, he, on the way from one to the other, he was telling us in detail how they, how they make their stuffed hamburgers. And Hmm. anyway, the guy, I think he, uh, he said, all right, I'm, I like, you know, this one and this one, and these are my terms. And I'm going to, uh, I think it was like 5 million bucks. I'm, I'm willing to pay, which it was like, that was like full value again at a time when nobody's paying for anything, let alone full value. So it's like, you kind of have to see where it goes. And, um, he's like, I'm going to wire money into escrow. And he like, you know, we took him out the whole day and then that was it. He kind of vanished. Never, never to hear from the guy again. And we're all, after it's like, well, how did it go? And where is he? And we're trying to follow up. And do you remember any of this or no? I, mean, I don't. It was probably like, I don't. Uh, anyway, it was one of those weird did, did things. Did I meet him? You did meet him. Uh-huh. It was, again, it was probably like a quick, yeah, in the, in one of the facilities as we were taking him around. But two part thing. One, it was like a weird experience that people just, they spend all this time and it's like, why, why would they go through that? Why would they do that? You know, there've been a couple, not many over my career now. And it's just maybe people just want to feel important for the day and kind of set the stage for these things. But that's an aside, but I'm pretty sure it was on that experience where you were sharing some stories as you typically do. And you talked about, (laughs) and I think I I remember this right. uh, Your attorney said to you something to the effect of when you start to sell property, it's a slippery slope. You mentioned you sold I think it was the Renaissance on Flamingo and Pecos. Sold them all in 06 and 07. But which was the first one? There was one, like your story, if I remember right, was, you know, I didn't want to sell property. I'm a developer. I hold property. And I sold one. And my attorney said, once you sell one, it's a slippery slope. And that kicked, that created a domino. Does that ring a bell at all or no? I'm sure it does, of course. Because at first I sold, I sold a lot of stuff. I sold the village apartments early. I sold Tamaris Village and traded that for the corner of Shopping Eastern. I built Gateway Village in Henderson, sold that down the road. So they're, they're off and on pieces, like one-offs, basically. Um, but then I'm going to sh- jump forward now to 05, 06, when the market was crazy hot. Mm-hmm. And Ethan Penner came to town, then was a successful um, investor himself, and bought Renaissance West from us for a healthy number and bought Renaissance 3, probably 06, 07. At the sa- around the same time, no, we sold Meridian earlier than that. Other sale, but different. That was a partnership venture, and this was Vista's project. So, those two projects sold um, for a really healthy number. And I never forget that market was so hot, Chaim, that whenever we sold it, say it was 06, and whenever I'm going to pick out a date, June of 06, by July or August or September, my staff came to me and said, Ethan Penner just paid X number of dollars for this project. Big number, but now there's another offer, and that he's selling it now for ten million more. Well, what? <laughs> how do you how do you feel about that? And I said, you know, I got what I expected. Am I shocked at that number because it's growing to the a radical level? But I'm not 
disappointed because we got what we wanted out of it. It was definitely a successful project for us. And so that slippery slope became a huge success because we sold off all these big assets just before the market crashed in 08. That was definitely a, a real win, a real winner for us, totally without any knowledge of what was going to happen when the, when the lights went out in 2008. So that was just more of a, the market was just so mm-hmm. hot that couldn't really resist those sales. So, I've always felt that if you get what you expect from a property when you sell it, that's that's your expectation. You can achieve that expectation. You don't you don't have to be greedy and look for something more down the road. So that's still in my mindset today. That's another and good it, lesson. It works in California for us too. I got with Jane Flynn and I. We have a lot of really great assets in California where most of my real estate assets are today. You mentioned Jane earlier. Tell tell me about Jane. She's great. Uh, Jane was Jane Merle. Uh, then married to Mark Merle. Um, she was my first, like I said, my first analyst for Pacific First Federal when I was building Renaissance West Shopping Center. That's a great story because we've become very, very close family friends, families combined, not just she and I. Um, then the savings and loan crisis hit, 87, when all the savings and loans were under serious pressure. And all my la- all my big projects were either savings and loans or insurance companies. <laughs> And uh, uh, I forgot what happened, and my savings and loans were in trouble, and I, that put me under jeopardy, and uh, my loans got sold off to Lehman Brothers and other big financial companies that bought off these loans at whatever discounts the S and loans were into, uh, and having to get out of uh, the, their 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 uh, dilemmas. And uh, so I asked Jane if she would become a consultant to me to help me kind of rethink my whole portfolio. So she and I would. She was pregnant with maybe one or two of her kids, wonderful kids, Jordan and Jack, also great friends of ours today. And Jane and I would travel around the country talking to people that owned our then at, had bought our loans from the savings and loans that went down. And we were negotiating with those buyers to buy our loans back, to buy the properties back, to buy the loans. And we did that together for a couple of years and it turned out to be a huge success. In that same time frame, I met Donald Trump. Really? Sidebar. I'll come back to Jane. I was in New York once <laughs> trying to find capital to take off these loans, and I was at the Trump Plaza Hotel, and I was going out for a run. It was a winter day. It was really cold, and I was going out for a run one morning because I used to run everywhere every day, and I went downstairs in front of the Trump Plaza Hotel and had my running gear on, and out came Donald Trump on the doorsteps of his hotel, big, heavy blue coat on, just he and I together in New York City on a cold winter day, and he said to me, aren't you going to be— Talk like this. Aren't you going to be cold running like that? I said, well, I probably will be. He said, once you consider going upstairs and putting some more clothes on. We had this conversation <laughs> about winter clothing <laughs> for a guy that talked just like this. Nothing hyperbolic about the conversation. And I ended up saying, thanks very much. And off I went for my run. That was my one exchange with Donald Trump. A different Donald Trump than what we see today, perhaps, in terms of his demeanor. Mm-hmm. Um, that's Jane and I working on these deals together. And then... Uh, and then down the road, after we, working out these assets, buying the assets back from these lenders and having them turn out from projects that were marginal to, again, really successful properties before the 08 sale came about, and I had new financing. Because new financing came about as a result of securitized debt. That was the big issue. There was no way to refinance these projects without having securitized debt out there to help, re, help continue the real estate development world. And Ethan Penner was part of that development activity. You know that name? Hmm. He was a real big name in the first 
he worked for um, a big security company in Japan. Is this the Witch same Island. guy that bought Renaissance from? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Un un different relationship. Yeah. Um, almost had the name of it. I'll get it back in as we're talking. Um, the security. So I had. I was asked to testify in front of a Senate Finance Committee hearing. The Senate was going around the country. The U.S. To, Senate. U.S. Senate trying to evaluate what's going to happen with real estate development in this world now. Because we're now in late 80, 87, 88, 89, 90, 91, 92, that early 92, 93 period when things were really sideways and people had huge assets and no financing capability. And I testified in front of the Senate Finance Committee and I was asked, will you consider filing bankruptcy? And all my bankers were sitting behind me. They would come to all these different hearings around the country. And I would say, I'll never consider filing for a bankruptcy. My father would roll over in his grave. That's my comment. And they weren't really listening. They were reading the Wall Street Journal and twiddling their thumbs. And the next day I get phone calls from these bankers saying, are you going to file for bankruptcy? I said, you didn't hear me. I said, I'm not going to file for bankruptcy. I'm going to find a way to survive and thrive, which is one of my latest and current mottos, survive and thrive. And I did. And Jane was instrumental in helping me find all this new financing with all this new securitized debt. Merrill Lynch and, and, and uh, Finagle Holiday, a whole bunch of companies out there were doing securitized debt. So basically, Jane helped me put all the securitized debt together and basically held my portfolio together. And it went from wherever it was there to a much higher level of value. And they were occupied and it was, it was tall cotton again for me. It was really successful. And then I had a, a I had the Renaissance Office Park, which had a loan with Travelers Life Insurance, and that was that loan was in jeopardy because the market was difficult at every level. And I picked up the phone one day and I called Travelers Life Insurance Company in Hartford, Connecticut, the main number, whatever it would have been, five thousand. Called the number and I asked for the head of their workout department. And on the phone came a man named John Motley. And John, I hope you're seeing this or hearing. I hope you're still around, John. This is a great Motley story. And John Motley came on the phone. This is calling the main headquarters number of a big life insurance company, <clears throat> thinking I'd go nowhere. But you have, when you've got to survive and thrive, you've got to figure out every possible avenue. And John said, I know your name. I said, what? He said, you got, you got $16 billion of loans. You know my name? He said, yeah, I know your name. I know your project. The Renaissance Office Park in Las Vegas, Nevada. I said, John, I'm really struggling. You have a team in Walnut Creek, California. It's giving you a real hard time on this refinance. I'm in trouble with this property. It's definitely a successful venture. I want, can you help me? He said, I'll come out to Las Vegas. So John Motley came out to Las Vegas, sat in my conference room with me, Larry Larkin, and his team from Walnut Creek. And in that meeting, we worked out a deal to take care of, to pay off travelers. It, it was amazing. Um, it was tearful for me. It was definitely an emotional experience because this guy came out of nowhere, didn't know me from Adam, and basically helped me kind of rethink how to manage this particular property and get it back in our, in our name and get travelers out of the picture. And a few months went by, <clears throat> and we're now running off uh, with these different these operations working. And John called me again, and he said, you know, Michael, I really enjoyed that that relationship with you and working out that deal with you in your office park. We have an asset in El Segundo, California, <clears throat> just outside the airport. Would you consider taking a look at it? It's a mortgage we own, and it's it's really je it's a jeopardized project. It's probably going to go through a bankruptcy. Uh, would you take a look at it for us? And so I said, sure. So I called Jane and her husband, then Mark, now divorced. She's now with Mike Flynn, later relationship, wonderful guy and a part of the family, ours. 
And I flew out. That was running every day. So this is a great story. So I flew down on America West from Las Vegas to L.A. And you know the, you know how Sepulveda Boulevard goes from the airport to El Segundo? Mm-hmm. It goes south of the airport. So I got off the plane with my running gear on. And I, this is pre-security. And I ran through the tunnel, that ridiculously long mile tunnel from Sepulveda Boulevard to El Segundo. I met Mark and Jane there. We looked at this big office project that was there that was in jeopardy with Traveler's Loan. Um, took a look at it and said, we're interested in this. Let's find a way to make this happen. It was going through a bankruptcy. I engaged Jerry Gordon, my great friend Jerry Gordon. You know Jerry, I'm sure, to help me work through the bankruptcy. Jerry went to court and did a marvelous job with the bankruptcy court and basically freed it up for us to be able to buy the asset. It was a huge success for Jerry, for us, and for our venture. And we started. That's how Jane and I got started. Wow. We started with that property, and then, then we formed a venture called Vista Merlin Associates, and we developed from ground up and acquired assets all around Southern California, Newport Beach, Costa Mesa, San Diego, Mission Viejo, um, some ground up, some assets. And our style then, and still is today, try to find assets that are in great locations but are poorly managed, malmanaged, or not, managers have disappeared, um, but they're in great locations. And we basically took over a number of assets in Southern California and converted them. And this is Jane's skill. We have a great architect. I'll tell you about that. It's a great story, too. great architect named Beirut Sadahi that helped us put every project together. We basically converted these assets that were in jeopardy into real jewel properties. And so our program still today, Vista Merle and Vista Flynn, are, are successful projects for us in, in Orange County. And that was Jane that ran that project for us, projects for us truly brilliantly. Uh, I started running June of 20, not June. It was just after, just after the summer of 2020, because I got COVID the summer, that summer. And I was looking to figure out what I would do to be active. And I was like, do I, I wondered if I have long COVID or not. Did, did, did having COVID affect my lungs? Hmm. So I started running. Good for you. Started two miles, thought I was going to die, cramps, blisters. Then I started to learn how to run right. You don't start running and just run out of the gate as fast as you can because that's where you get cramps and everything else from. But start out easy and different types of runs. And two miles led to three and three to five and then eight. And if you can do eight, you could probably do a half marathon. So I signed up for one of those. Then I got a running coach. I got the coach for the half marathon. And then the half became a full and then another half because now I wanted to beat my time from the last half. And does it sound familiar at all? Did you totally. have a similar How many fulls trajectory? I've, I just ran my second one, Chicago. Good for you. Last month. Time? Four hours and two seconds. You got through it, man. It's not easy being on the road for four hours, that's for sure. No, it's not. <laughs> I was a smoker. I smoked in high school. I smoked <laughs> in I was high four, school. I was smoking when I was 14. We used to play baseball in the dugout. After a game, we'd smoke a cigarette. Not weed, just cigarettes. So I smoked when I was 14 till. January 15th, 1978, smoked in bed, smoked Winston's, smoked Gitan. And when I was living in Europe, heavy smoker. Uh, and then I went, this is maybe somewhat apocryphal, but I went to a Marquette UNLV basketball game, I think the 15th of January, 1978, and UNLV won the game. And I was a huge UNLV rebel, Tarkanian supporter, like everybody in mm-hmm. town was. And I came home, we lived on the Sahara Golf Course. And I said, and my mother was there, my family were around, and I said, I'm going to go for a run. I, I'm so full of energy. And so I ran the entire 18-hole golf course, and I'm a smoker. 
And I came back huffing and puffing. I said, hey, I can do this. I can run this entire golf course with energy. So I really got engaged in the Forrest Gump style of running. And I started running nonstop. And I then ended up taking on the sponsorship of the Las Vegas Marathon. Al Boca was my race director. I hope you're listening to this, Al, because she played a great part of my life with me in that role. (laughs) Al was my race director, and I ended up sponsoring the marathon. We sponsored it for like 10 years. And I ran it every year, the marathon. Um, all kinds of great experiences. Many of them ended at Renaissance Center East on Trop. Many of them ended at Sunset Park. That was before the Las Vegas Boulevard episode. Mm-hmm. Most of them ended up in Sunset Park or Renaissance Center. One of them we did crazily from the top of Mount Potosi down to Renaissance Center. So Mount Potosi is up there at whatever the elevation is. I'm going to say five or 6,000 feet. I'm making up that number. Down to 2,100 feet in the valley. All downhill the first half. I ran that first half in record speed. I thought, man, I'm going to run a 220 marathon here. Anyway, it killed me because I ran down the hill, loping down the hill, killed my quads. I got down to the bottom of the hill, probably some on east, someplace on east. I could barely move. And I finished it like in 3.30 at Renaissance Center, completely drained and exhausted. But I finished it, and I never would do that again. Those races doing downhill lump, lumbering like that was a huge mistake. But I ran St. George many times. I ran 15 or 16 marathons. I ran St. George many times, Las Vegas. Uh, Forche and I went to probably, I think this might be in his pocket, he and I went to Rome together and ran the Rome Marathon together. The only one time when Rome closed down the entire city for the marathon within the city limits. Wow. It was an amazing experience. And he'll tell you that at the end of the race, I came up to him or he came up to me and I was like a wild, I was a ghost. I was probably white with sweat and ghosty looking. I was probably completely out of steam. I could barely focus on where I was. And he was probably laughing because he loped along, got the whole thing done. And we finished together at 26.2, but I was definitely drained (laughs) and exhausted to the next level. But ran many marathons and figured out one day on my marathon run, on my long runs that I figured I ran at least 25,000 miles in my Forrest Gump career. Because I think that's around the equator. It's kind of the math I did when I was on a run one day. Um, but running was a huge part of my life. Every place I would go, and you, this is what's going to happen to you now, and it probably is, you go to a city and you want to explore the city or wherever you are, running is a great way to really address a, yeah. a, a different environment. One day I was in Japan, Tokyo, and I went for a run from the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo way out to the middle of nowhere, probably 10 miles out, and I couldn't find my way back because it was all in Japanese characters. There was not one English character, and no one spoke English. And no GPS. <laughs> and so finally I figured out how to get on a bus and get myself back, but it was definitely a, a challenge getting back in Japan on one of my many runs there. But running was a huge part of my life. And to this day, the cloning part of that is David Saltman now is running every day. And he's taken over the gauntlets. Like I passed the baton to David and his son's now, he ran a 5K. His son, Alex, won a 5K a couple of days ago. So running keeps our heads sane and uh, it's a big part of my life it's, and our family lives. And my daughter's a runner too. So everybody's in that same physical fitness world together. So I mentioned we have something in common. Before we get yeah. into that, tell me about Vista Homes. Um, I forgot what happened, how that all started, but Hal Ober, remember that name? I do. Hal Ober was a really good friend of ours. Um, and David and his sons were I had all breakfast with Dave probably three weeks ago. Is Dave, what's he doing now? Dave is uh, brokering land. Great. Doing his own investments also. He's doing, terrific. Doing wonderfully. Terrific. When Hal, Hal was pretty much retired 
probably going through a bit of a battle himself after his U.S. Homes World, and I think over Homes maybe. Anyway, Hal and I were really close pals, and I said, why don't you come in and join me in Vista, and we'll develop a home division. And he did, and he came in, and he became like the titular head of the Vista Homes World. And David came to work for us, too. And we ended up building homes all over the Was he a good employee? Pardon me? David was an employee. Was he a good one? He was terrific. Yeah, the over, <laughs> over, Hal was great, and David was terrific. Yeah, he was great. And we ended up building homes, a couple thousand homes in town, and uh, that was a really successful venture. I forgot even the years for that one, but it was definitely great. It was all about bringing Hal over in and helping Hal kind of see the rest of his career unfold in a real successful way, and it was a real successful venture for us. I ended up selling that company, this aforementioned Rex Lewis, who ended up taken over and created Avante Homes out of it. But mm-hmm. during that time, Rex ran Vista Homes for me, and it was a really and fun and successful venture. And out of that, my first venture um, was with Gary Fry. You know Gary. Mm-hmm. Gary owned some property out at Rancho Santa Fe, out at the Santa Fe Hotel area, and he was looking for somebody to help him develop the property. We joint ventured that property together with Vista Homes and Gary's company, and that was also a successful venture, and he was a really great partner. That was a really good partnership for both of us, and that was just one of my beginning Vista Homes projects. And I did all around the community. We did did homes for years. So that was a fun one for me. That was Vista Homes. And that leads me to Gerald Clayton and Laura Lychok. In the late 70s, maybe, um, I was my office was at Consolidated Real Estate. That was Dwight Jory's company in town in the 70s. And that was part of Brooks and Larry's Winchester Plaza building on a 1700 DI. And I was had an office in there because they were managing, they were doing leasing for Brooks, and I ended up kind of taking that over and, uh, and for Larry. And um, somehow I met in that world, I met Laura Lychok, met Gerilyn Clayton, who was instrumental in starting one of the first big trust deed businesses in, in the community called Consolidated Mortgage. And Larry and I became partners of with Dwight Jory in Consolidated Mortgage. And that was a real successful trustee company. And Gerilyn was amazing. Passed so away th- this is where I remember like trustee deeds were a thing when I was just getting into real estate where people, you would put seconds on property or take first and seconds, first and second first positions and, seconds. and you would give out loans. Right. And the reason for that was during that time frame when I told you that the New York Life wasn't making housing loans in Las Vegas, the major insurers were not making loans in Las Vegas. So the business here was between Teamsters Financing, which was significant because that's how Maryland Parkway got built and Sunrise Hospital got built and, and Boulevard Mall got built. And that was those were successful ventures for sure for Teamsters and for the local developers like Rowan Malaska here. But there wasn't much financing around. So financing was basically based on trustee investments. So first and seconds, 10 12% sometimes more percent investments were would help generate real estate activity in this community. And Gerilyn really got it. And Gerilyn was a real straight arrow, also a handshake woman, um, real good at sizing up people and, and borrowers. And we ended up having quite a successful venture with that mortgage company that Gerilyn led the way. And Gerilyn's daughter, Laura, after Gerilyn retired and went up north to up to, I think, Ely, um, passed away a couple of years ago, and a really great friend who also made the best tuna sandwiches for me I'd ever had at lunch, <laughs> one of my great Gerald Clayton stories. Laura took over the company, and Laura's the, she's a chip off the old block of her daughter. Laura runs now 
um, Clayton Mortgage and Investment, and that's a real successful. It was up until the crash occurred during the pandemic era. Um, but she still has a successful more, um, more second and first trustee company, and she's a great friend. I'm also an investor in that company with trustees with Laura, and she's like her mother, real straight arrow. No, 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 nothing funny about her hand, her business, all handshake business and real, real successful at what she does. And that was the mortgage business that I got into. Out of this development world comes all kinds of possibilities. That was one of them. Restaurants and I was in the hardware business. You can imagine every business that I could be into where somebody might have failed, I would jump into that business, which is why I went to Sneakers. Because Sneakers was originally called Amos T's. It was my partner, Daryl Tomlin's restaurant. It didn't do well. I took it over and found some guys from Upland, California that had this concept called Sneakers, which is the burger restaurant. That Mm -hmm. became Sneakers of Las Vegas. I ended up owning that bought out the original partners and ended up owning that business. All that because of my development world, though. That's where all this, as you said that earlier, too, all right. that kind of stems from the development activity. But but mortgage business was part of that as well. We're going to add that to your bio also. There you go. And what else do you have on your notes? Let's see, man. I got uh, Kyle Ranch. You know where Kyle Ranch is? No. Where's North, Kyle North Ranch? Las Vegas. The original, original ranch property in this community, besides the Mormon Fort, in 1850, was Kyle Ranch, the Kyle family. That was North Las Vegas. It's where the big spring water would flow, so water was water was very much available in that Kyle Ranch, North Las Vegas area. And the community grew out of that water source. And Kyle Ranch was a property that was um, I forgot the name of the Kyle family, but there are other families involved in it. Stewart family might have been involved in that as well. It's a kind of an interesting checkered past, and I ended up with Bill McCowan, became my, my uh, if you will, my partner in industrial projects, and we took over that property, that Kyle Ranch property, and built industrial facilities on there, and then helped kind of with the parks and recreation people at North Las Vegas, help enhance that property by re-engineering the Kyle Ranch home itself, and that was a little more contribution that we made to the community as a result of doing the property. How many acres was it? That's a good, I don't know, 20, 30 acres, big, big, big parcel. Losey Road, Craig Road, Losey, I can't quite remember. North Las Vegas, Losey mm-hmm. Road, I've even forgotten the locations where it is. But it's still a, a real major um, tourist attraction, local attraction for this, the origin of this community. Yeah, 20, 30 acres, you mentioned another, the other property you did, 55 acres, that, that was floating. That's the one at Trop, that's right. the one at Trop Indicator. Like today, if you could find that amount of oh, land you know, anywhere in Las Vegas, not possible. salvate. Not, not possible, of course, exactly, yeah. You really had a few. That, that was a great one. All these projects came out of what I call the Forrest Gump world. And once I got started in development and running, <laughs> I just kept going. Couldn't stop. <laughs> I owned, I made a loan on the Minx Nightclub. Okay. Remember that? Yes. That's where Pac-Man Jones shooting took place. I made the loan. I was a second trustee on the loan. Um, that shooting took place. That business shut down. Um, I, I tried to buy the first at a discount. The woman that owned the first would not discount it. We ended up acquiring that first. Ended up going into the nightclub business. And it ended up becoming the Share Nightclub. Remember the Share Nightclub? I don't remember Probably that. the leading gay nightclub in town. And my CFO, Michael Chris, still my CFO, 30-some years, ran that nightclub for us and for me and... That was an amazing business, um, uh, over the top, successful. And did you end up selling that? We did. Sold that property a couple of years ago. 
Was it the property with the business? Yeah, with, well, you can't, you can't sell the license. You can sell the property, the, the real estate property and the land, but you can't sell the license. So someone else has to apply for their own? Exactly. Got it. Yeah. That's, their, that's their issue now. <laughs> so I got Michael Crisp. I had a really great attorney named Jerry Tremberth. That was my... Jerry got me into the trustee business. Jerry was a really um, very, very bright attorney. Um, was, was with Lionel Sawyer for years, the premier firm in mm-hmm. town. When I um, was doing some kind of a project back in the late, maybe the mid-70s, late 70s, early 80s, I went to see Jerry to help me kind of figure out what I was doing with the legal background of a particular project I was trying to engineer. And he was so good the next day, kind of like Forche, the next day he came back with a complete litany of things I should be thinking about to move that project forward. It was such a great conversation. I went to him a couple, maybe a month or two later and said, would you come to work for me at Vista? And he did. And he was my in-house counsel for years. Passed away a few years ago, and tragically, but brilliant, brilliant lawyer. And he was a big part of my success story. And he got me into the trustee business. Jerry loved the trustee business. So when I, that thing with Gerald Clayton mm-hmm. and Laura, and and then I had that I formed a company called Vista Financial Resources, also a mortgage company. And Jerry was instrumental in helping me get that company off the ground. That he, that he died was a sad, sad story. That David Saltman came in and basically jumped in where Jerry left off. You know, what's interesting is today the model is more specialized. You know, you were, you, you're a developer at the core, but you develop different types of properties. And that, like you said, led you into different ventures and businesses and a lot of joint ventures. Whereas today it feels like the the move is to you know, you're a self-storage person and you focus on that or you're, you build multifamily and you focus on that. There are very few that really are multidisciplinary anymore. I could never quite get that together. I mean, I probably should have stayed in one sector. It probably would have been a bigger uh, ultimate popping, but I did everything you can possibly do. I did a, a couple of mini storage projects in town with a guy that I met from Utah that he was a successful mini storage developer and he and I ventured together and did mini storage projects together. I did industrial with Bill McCowan. I've done apartments. I've done everything but high rise. I live in a high rise. <laughs> I live in park towers. Um, but I don't I don't I haven't built a high rise, but I've done everything you can possibly do. Just some, some and, kind of eclectic behavior of And you're to, more of a joint venture guy than you are a solo guy, it sounds like. In many ways, yeah. 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 Whereas also now it's more you know, if I can't do the whole thing myself, I'm not I'm not interested that joint ventures are also riddled with issues and challenges and if things go sideways, but you, you seem to have found a way there. I have great partners. This Jane Flynn is an amazing partner. We're, like I say, we're close family friends. Uh, I got a great joint venture with my wife. We are very close. We have a great love affair and a relationship that's golden. That's an interesting joint venture. Um, I'm also, because, you know, we talked about the Saltman Center for Conflict Resolution. I'll tell you about that one. And that's also about conflict at every level. Everybody, I want to I kind of end with that one. Sure. I've got it here. Everybody comes with conflict in their lives. Yeah. I've always been trying to resolve conflict in a way that makes sense for everybody, a win-win for everybody on both sides of those transactions. Oh, I'm connecting the dots now on the joint venture part. Right. You have any any more on your list? Oh, it's, i got tons of things, man. <laughs> I'm in the YPO. You know that I'm in the YPO. Oh, tell me about that. Yeah. I'm one of the founding it's members a young of the president's what, organization. There you go. Right? I was a young president at one time, now an old president. Uh, I was one of the founding members of the chapter here in town. Um, you're still involved. You mentioned that you're you're organizing a conference here. I, I'm I'm also in the YPO in Park City, Utah. I'm in the YPO in San Francisco. 
I'm the moderator of my forum in San Francisco. I'm in the YPO European chapter called the Euro chapter. That's probably because Sonia and I have this European background. Of course, she's European, but we joined the European chapter, and uh, I'm now the chairman of the European chapter. That's a laddering issue, by the way. I started off as an assistant education guy. And Lad- i got to write that down, the, laddering. Now, be careful what you wish for. Now, yep. now I'm the president of the European chapter. And yes, we are bringing uh, the European chapter to Las Vegas next May. San Francisco and Las Vegas are the two venues for the Las Vegas uh, event for the YPO. That's a big part of my life. Cause we travel extensively, and YPO has been a big part of that travel program for years. We have a home in Austria, so we're there quite a bit as well, and that just makes the European chapter that much more And so for those who don't accessible. know, what is YPO? What is YPO? Young, yeah. young, you said a Young President's Organization? That's what it stands for. Black. For someone who doesn't know what that is, what is it? Describe the experience. Why would somebody join it? What do you get out of it? That's a great question. I think it started off with probably back in the days, I think the guy's name was Hickok that started. I could be wrong about the name. Probably probably somebody that inherited a company from their family, figured, tried to figure out how to run the company, and they ended up putting team help, help people together to help them run the companies. And out of that came an organization of young presidents helping each other with their assets, with their projects, their personal issues. It's confidential relationship. Um, with, we have what's called forum confidentiality with these smaller group within the YPO. And so you have conversations about everything from your business, personal issues, family issues, and keep it all very much intact. And like I say, highly confidential. And it's a way for people to kind of align their interests at all our presidents of different organizations. And to get in earlier, I think it took 50 employees. I forgot the number, maybe $5 million of annual revenue. I've forgotten those numbers now too, what originally qualified you to get in. But companies have some significance, but not giant, mm-hmm. where guys, women and guys would get together and help each other with their business and personal issues. So YPO has played a big role in the world for helping people kind of manage their personal lives, their estate planning, and their companies. And now I'm in an organization called CEO, which is another level of YPO, Chief Executive Officer. And that's just interesting. Las Vegas, Rolly Sturm is now the president of the CEO this year. So we got a European chapter president here, and we got a CEO chapter, CEO organization president also Las Vegas residents. So. What does that say about the leadership that Las Vegas that's who, churns that's, up? That's who we are, right? I'll tell you what's fascinating also about that. I made an observation a few years ago, and it's still true today. The real estate organizations, the Alphabet Soup, they're CCIM, which I'm sure you know, but for those who don't, it's Certified Commercial Investment right. Member. It's a professional designation that commercial real estate professionals can obtain through coursework. Uh, you put a portfolio of experience together in a comprehensive exam. There's SIOR, which is Society of Industrial and Office Realtors. It's also a professional designation, also has coursework. You have to have a certain... Um, production threshold to get in. So you can't just walk in off the street and you have to get voted in by the chapter. And that's mostly an ethics thing. There's NAOP, which is the Commercial Real Estate Development Association. There's several others. but ULI. There's ULI. I don't know much about the composition of the chapter here for them. Good point. But those three, I could tell you, are multiple years consecutively for now a long period of time, chapter of the year in all of the U.S. and churn out presidents of the year. Here? Here in Las Vegas. Fantastic. So I was actually NAOP president last year, and we won, I put those up, we won chapter chapter of the year 
Now, again, we're a little old Las Vegas. We're up against San Francisco, Chicago, New York, Massachusetts, and we keep winning. Not every year because they have to give it to other folks too, and and some by merit, but some, honestly, they just have to skip over because we keep winning, and I won president of the year. Good for you. And I'm, the I think, the third in a row from NAOP. But it's an interesting... Uh, connection to what you just said about here's two of you that are right presidents. Right. I'm curious, is there something in the water here? Well, land of in oppor- Southern Nevada, land of opportunity. You know, we come here with uh, all kinds of experts. Some people are born and raised like you. Some people come from afar. Um, different way of becoming, but the community brings an interesting synthesis of people from all over the planet. And I think that really engenders this kind of activity about successful ventures. The experience you've had, the experience I've had, is part of this amazing energy that we have in this area. I don't think people say, "What is Las Vegas?" It's an area. It's not a city. Mm-hmm. It's city of Las Vegas, North Las Vegas, Henderson, et al. But it's in the county. But it's really kind of an experience that lenders it lends itself to opportunity. So I think that. That background lifts us into this issue where you have successful individuals and enterprises that create these awards for us. So I think it's amazing what this town has been able to do, and we're still going. Look what's going on right now. I went to the Sphere last weekend. I could not believe what was going on. I look at the Sphere out my window. I couldn't believe the U2 show, how amazing that was. Unbelievably hard to describe. Went to the film the next day. Have you seen the film? Not yet. You've been, to this, you've been there at all yet? No, we're going in a couple weeks. The with, building uh, is a, the building itself is a, is a wonder. The building itself is a wonder. Whatever Dolan did to put two point six billion dollars into that building, I hope it's a huge success for him because the building itself is high energy, extremely well done, immaculately clean, well managed. The show itself was off the charts. U two show. I'm sure more will come. And the film is another experience, unrelated to the U two show. But again, the Sphere is an amazing experience that we're now having of all places. Las Vegas, Nevada. London didn't get it. Las Vegas got it. So the Dolan. Are you excited about F one? Hundred percent. I look at that one too. Out the window, I see F one. Next couple of weeks, we're going to have F one here. Um, that's an interesting story. How that ever happened here, I don't know the story, but it's an amazing. So I understand that. So F one partners with local operators everywhere else. They bring the the event, and the local operators run everything. And this is the only place in the world where F one will be operating. Interesting. So I think that's fascinating. So out the door, out my window is a headquarters. This amazing headquarters building they built. A 300,000-foot headquarters building, which is obviously going to be a permanent structure for mm-hmm. years to come. The paddock is right there. The event starts right there, right down Coval. Not Coval, but Coval. I was called a Coval. There you go, because Denise Chapman will tell you it's Coval. Ah. And then one day I was having a conversation <laughs> with Denise Chapman, and I said, I, I built this project at the corner of Flamingo and Coval. I said, Michael, it's Coval. Why is it Coval? Because her father, Robert Coval, was a planning director for the county. And that's who it's named after? That's, there you go. So Coval. So Coval is going to be a huge part of the straightaway for the F1 race. Goes around the sphere, down Sands, out to Las Vegas Boulevard. It's going to be an amazing um, event for this community. So that's just... And the Fontainebleau is opening up in mm-hmm. December. I mean, we have this amazing energy going on here. And out of all that energy and all these developments and all this... Steve Wynn kind of re-engineered this community in the late 80s when he did Mirage and re- kind of reinvented the community. We seem to are never ending this kind of development activity, which creates all kinds of opportunity for awards to win for development activity and creation, creation of 
different uh, activities and the town survives and does it really well. So it's an amazing story to me, this Las Vegas story. I don't quite fully understand it, but I sure love living in it. So do I. Yeah. So when I was at UNLV, a business professor assigned us a book to read. And it's an odd thing for a business professor to assign this book because it was called Man's Search for Meaning. I know you've heard of it. because I, I read it every day. You read it every day. Oh, that's interesting. A business pro- what professor assigned that? I can't class? remember his name, but I know it was a business class and he assigned this book and I, I was never a big reader. Who wrote it? Um, Frankel. Victor, Victor Frankel. Frankel. Victor Frankel. Never a big reader. Read this book cover to cover. For those who don't know, first half of the book is his uh, experience and story living in the concentration camps during the Holocaust. And the second half of the book is... Um, Global therapy. Yeah. What, what kind of therapy is it called? Logo, logo therapy. So he, is, uh, he was a psychiatrist mm-hmm. going into the camps. Right, right. And he really observed the human condition. And the second half of the book is logo therapy. You could talk more about it. But I read this book, totally rewired how I view myself, view the world, interact with the world. I read that you read it every day. How'd you know about that? It's somewhere online. Uh-huh. And I wow. found it. And I zeroed in on it. Yeah, every day I, I, I have it. Not, I have it in my bathroom. I read a page every day. Every day. How long have you been doing that? Twenty years. Yeah, it's amazing. It's just little. I read little segments. I read a page about how he survived and how his people around him survived, and the Nazi activity in that world, and how he tried to hold people together. And he's also a physician, so he tried to keep people safe and sane as much as he could, uh, and he got through it. And he ended up. I'm not quite sure. I think I've never quite fully read how he put the notes together. He must have made little small notes as he went through his experience, Auschwitz and Dachau and Birkenau, wherever he was. But then he ended up writing this amazing, amazing book. And I think it is probably a book that everybody in the planet should read cover to cover and as often as they can because it really tells you how to survive under the most difficult, difficult conditions. What's the line? You can deal with almost anyhow if you have a... A why? There you is go. that? Yeah, I like it. So it, the, the premise is you can really make it through anything if you ascribe meaning to it. You're totally survive, and then I can say then thrive is the, the 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 rhyming word that gets you to the next step. Is that where you got survive and thrive? Like yeah. a build no, off? No, I got that out of my own. Some I got it either from somebody else or I got it through my own thought process when I maybe on a run one day. Maybe don't forget the times I had the. 74 event, the 87 mm-hmm. savings loan event, the 93, the, up to 93, the 2008 terrible event. Um, what's going on today? We have pandemic. We have a lot of different ways so of going through process. So with your reference points to those events, are we in an event today where we have interest rates are, are increasing? You've seen a more dramatic increase. We've seen a dramatic increase, but not overnight. overnight. It's all relative. Uh, we've got geopolitical issues, Ukraine, Russia, now Israel, Gaza. Are we in an event right now? We are. So, think, so say more about that. I, think we're, I don't know. I haven't thought it through carefully enough yet. We're in a, I think we're resetting the, 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 uh, the picture for the world today. I think we have some really interesting issues going on with Iran, China, Russia. The Ukraine-Russia thing was critical, important, and still kind of on the on the back burner right now, but it really isn't. Mm. That's going on, and Eastern Europe is threatened by that. I'm not sure, quite sure how far that will go with Putin's interest in kind of reinventing the Soviet Union. 
this whole issue of Iran kind of running the world of the Middle East, trying to eliminate Israel, isn't just two-state solution. Now it's river to sea and elimination of that country. Um, that's, those are all reset issues. I think we're in, a, in, let alone inflation and interest rates here and China's activity. And, and we, we're in some, I don't know the, how that's going to conclude. I don't, no one knows that, but there's a reset going on right now in the world. And I think it's, it's, it's a real critical period for us to pay attention to what's going on and not shine it on like it's not really happening. I'm not quite sure what we can do, mm-hmm. but I don't think we can just shine it on and pretend like it's not happening around us. So be, I- be aware. I want to use this as a jumping into point because we talked earlier about the UNLV Boyd School of Law Saltman Center for Conflict Resolution. So tell me more about what is that and then how does that inform your thinking into what we just talked about with all these conflicts going on around the world? Well, um, I've been, I'm a lawyer. I've been in lots of litigation over the years, mostly in the grocery business where I had slip and falls on a regular daily basis. Um, people would pretend they flip on a grape and a, whatever might have happened and we ended up having a dispute and so we ended up basically paying off those small claims that was conflict that I didn't care for but it was pre-litigation but I don't like litigation I lost uh, one big litigation years ago on a case where I should have absolutely won hands down and uh, just court didn't see it that way and I ended up turning that around and re- appealing it and winning it on the appeal but that was uncomfortable for me totally to be in litigation because litigation drags on forever lawyers like me but I'm not practicing they're not playing with house money because they're earning their fees um, so one day I was on a run in London and uh, picked up the London Times after my run and I looked at a section in the side of the London Times it was about mediation and conflict resolution I read it thought this is a fascinating idea let's get into how to help lawyers learn how to negotiate not just litigate. So I picked up the phone. I called Dick Morgan, got him at home probably in the middle of the night, landline calls, and I said, Dick, I have this great idea. How about let's form a conflict program at the law school? He said, what a great idea. And I said, we'll help fund it. Um, Sonia's a psychologist. I'm a lawyer. We can do this together as a team. What do you think? He said, what a great idea. So I came back to Las Vegas, and Dick and I sat down and figured out a plan. Uh, and we searched around the country for the top conflict-resolving professor, and we found a magnificent woman named Jean Sternlight, who is still there, now on the cusp of her program. But she's, she started the program for us, now taken over by a woman named Lydia Nussbaum. Um, but Jean kind of helped manage the entire process for us in creating this conflict program. Uh, and then we had to name it. And, <laughs> and uh, I thought we'd just call it the... UNLV Conflict Resolution Program. And Sonia said, no, you got to call it the Saltman Center. You need to put your name on it. I said, that's a real difficult thing for me because I don't mind that posthumously. I won't know about it, but in my lifetime, putting my name on it is, just seems too grandiose to me. She said, you have to do it because you're so well-known in this community and you need to identify yourself with this program. So I finally buckled and said, yes, we'll do it. And the Saltman Center with Gene Sternlight running it, we formed a board of Dick Morgan and um, Phil Pro and Richard Gladstone and uh, Robert Mnookin from Harvard. Um, and we had a big, a big uh, successful, uh, really great advisory board. And we hit the ground running, and it's now one of the top-rated top conflict programs in the country. It's been in the top ten forever, uh, five, six, seven, eight, nine, in the conflict world of all these law schools in the country. Gene helped manage that process significantly. If it weren't for Gene, we probably wouldn't be there. 
Now Jean's turned it over to Lydia Nussbaum, and Lydia is now taking it over, and Lydia will keep the flame burning, and that'll continue being one of the top-rated conflict programs in the country. And for me, it's all about helping young lawyers, law students, learn how to talk, negotiate, deal with people, and not just necessarily run to the first filing of a complaint and filing for litigation. I think the real way to get this process done better for me from a legal point of view is is negotiating your way out of problems and not necessarily having to go to, to litigation. And I'm in a big litigation right now, by the way, speaking of litigation. I don't like them. It's been going on for a number of years. Um, one of those inevitable situations where you had to file a lawsuit, which we did, um, against a bank um, in an unfortunate transaction situation with the bank. But it could have been resolved with negotiation. If the mm -hmm. bank had come to us and said, let's talk about it, we would have talked about it in a heartbeat. Jane and I would have done that in a heartbeat, but it didn't happen. So, but Similar to what you did with John Motley. Yeah. Helping people figure out how to manage a conflict program without having to go to, the, to, to war. And it happens at home. Domestically, it happens in partnerships. In a business, it happens at every level where you have conflict. So the conflict program for us is teaching students how to think and negotiate. Part of that was we did a thing called the Peace in the Desert series. And that desert is here, our desert. It's also the desert in the Middle East. So part of that was at one point, you probably know this, I, I helped engineer a basketball program between Arab and Jewish kids in Israel. And what year was that? It would have been like 08, 09, 09 and 10. And that was a great program. That was bringing Arab and Jewish kids together to play th street ball. Here's how it happened. I took David and I and Sonia were in Israel. We were in an Arab village. We were in a Jewish village, and it was schools and agriculture and, and, and thriving. <clears throat> Went to an Arab village, and the kids had playground with a broken glass. No one paid attention. The baskets were broken. The kids had basketballs. They were all good athletes. The Arab kids in these little they lived five kilometers apart. Didn't know each other. And David said, what a shame to see this for these Arab kids. They're, in, they're, they're Israelis, Arab Israelis, and they have different, different facilities that the Jewish kids have. So I said, let's do a beach ball program. So I tried doing a, a beach volleyball program in Haifa. It didn't work because it had to go too far to go from the West Bank to Haifa. So I said, let's do a street ball, three-on-three -three basketball program. So um, my great friend Tommy Jakovic from Pittsburgh is one of the top three-on-three -three basketball gurus in, in the country. So he became my commissioner of basketball. He and I went together to Israel, and we formed up, we put up a basketball program together. Arab, 150 kids, 75 Jews, 75 Arabs, playing basketball and living together and having a, well, I called it the streetball hafla. Hafla, do you speak Arabic? No. Hafla means spontaneous party in Arabic. So it was a streetball weekend. Three-on-three -three basketball, hanging out together, pizza, talking to each other. And at first, the kids could hardly communicate. The Arab kids, we put them in the same dorm rooms. The Arab and Jewish kids wouldn't talk to each other. They're so intimidated. These are young kids, 15, mm -hmm. 16, before the, before the military age. They would, couldn't, couldn't relate to each other. But finally... In one of the it's a film, one of the scenes in the film, the Jewish kid or the Arab kid throws the ball to one kid, the other kid grabs it, and kind of that's how that works. If you play catch with each other, you kind of develop a relationship. And at the end of these two big softball, street ball programs, the Arab and Jewish kids team won the entire event. And they hugged each other, and it was a great high-fiving, and it was a great way to end it. And, and then the next scene is the 18-year-old 
Jewish kid going into the military to the IDF and the 18-year-old Arab kid not going into the IDF. Another problem. Mm-hmm. He goes off to university. The Jewish kid goes off to the military and never the train shall meet. And that's been a huge challenge forever in that part of the world. But for me, it was part of the what I called the conflict program of peace in the desert. So we did that. One, one of the What's the film called? Streetball Hafla. Definitely something worth watching. You can Google it. It's a fun film. Hafla is one of those words where, like in, in English, we've adopted words from other languages. Right. And in Israel, I know there's a lot of uh, Arabic adopted into the language. Yeah, I think Hafla is one of those. Everybody that speaks Hebrew knows yeah. Hafla is an Arabic word. Streetball in the desert? Streetball Hafla. Streetball Hafla. Yeah, definitely worth watching. Yeah. And so... And Tommy and I did it together. What are your thoughts now as, as to what I wish the has erupted in the last 30 right days? Now, <laughs> if I do end up going, I want to do something that brings kids together. Kids. Because this thing is out of control right now. There's so much hatred going on. Both ways, by the way. I remember back in the day when Israel was first founded, it wasn't, you know, the, the idea of being an Arab was anathema. And today the idea of being a Jew is anathema. And the kids in the Muslim communities there learn nothing but negative things about the Israeli kids, the Jewish kids, and and I'm not sure how it's going to end. I sure hope to God it ends well. I hope the hostages are released. I hope that everybody comes out of it okay. I hope that the Palestinians have a life of their own as well, and the Jews and Arabs can somehow find a way. But that's a hopeful dream. Can it happen? What do you think, Hayam? You know, as I observe this, it's complicated. I'm well, not we, an expert. I'm not on the ground. I don't have all the facts and details. So that's do. that's always the disclaimer I start with. One thing I don't see is a vision for Gaza, a positive vision. I don't know if, if anyone's listening to this and there are people out there on social media or whatever that do cast a positive vision. I'd love you to tell me who they are because I want to I want to start following them. You know, you've been called a visionary throughout your life and career. So we'll, we'll kind of end on on that note. But in the in the sort of theme of vision and visionaries. What could Gaza look like if there wasn't a conflict like this? What would the employment be? What would the development be like? What would tourism be like? What would life be like if if this conflict either didn't exist or was somehow uh, relieved dramatically? You've been to the beach in Tel Aviv? Yes. You've been to the beach near Haifa? I mean, you go down to, to Jaffa. I mean, not Haifa, but Jaffa, adjacent to Tel Aviv, the Arab village. That's on the way down to south. That's all part of a real thriving part of the world where Arabs and Jews get along well like they do in Haifa. They don't always necessarily get together with intermarriage, but they get together and they're in Haifa University together and they're in Jaffa together. Gaza could be Singapore. Gaza could be, if, if the money had been, if money allocated to, to Gaza had gone into infrastructure, education, hospitalization, medical facilities, athletic facilities, beach, Gaza could have been an extension, the Arab version of an extension of Tel Aviv. For whatever the reason, I'm not sure how this all came together, how it didn't come together, but all that money that went into Gaza ended up going into tunneling and, mer- and military uh, uh, military activity and you know, improvement of weaponry, and it went the wrong direction, I think. So how can it look in the future? It could be the Palestinian. I think it could be the Pal- I don't know this. It could be the Palestinian Authority comes in. I don't know how they. I don't know how Gaza is going to be. Elim- I don't know how the Hamas is going to be eliminated. I mean, how do you how do you eliminate that huge force in Gaza of Hamas that are so dedicated to to eliminating Israel? So 
can there be a two-state solution? I don't know. But can there be a Gaza and a West Bank that live in peace with the Israelis? All they've got to do is recognize Israel. All they've got to do is recognize Israel. This recognize Israel as a place on the planet that's not arbitrary, but actually exists for a reason, not just because of the Holocaust, but because of all the early Zionist activity into Israel, and let alone the homeland discussion of centuries ago. Mm-hmm. If they could find a way to communicate, and some leadership in the Arab community could align themselves with leadership in the Israeli Jewish community and say, listen, enough of this. Our kids are dying. Mothers don't want their child, children killed any longer. We've got to find a way to cooperate. Let's get together and recognize Israel and recognize Gaza and recognize West Bank. And whether it's a two-state solution So you're saying not, recognize each other. Recognize each other. Yeah. yeah. That, that, that's my hope. And that, lead, and that maybe, leads us to a pathway of surviving and thriving. Right. There you go. Right. And that's a definite challenge, and I don't know if that's ever going to happen, but I'm dedicated to the proposition that that conflict can be resolved by simply recognizing Israel's right to exist. Yeah. I don't want to end on that note. No, no, we're going to end on a different note. No, I mean, you you are, you know, you voted not just with your time, energy, your money, your uh, experiences, that you actually have this thing called the Saltman Center of Conflict Resolution. And there just happens to be another conflict that's been going on for a long time. So I was curious to hear your thoughts on it. But I I called you a, a name a second ago, a visionary. You've been called a visionary, not just by me, but many others. How, first of all, how do you feel about that? Do you agree with that? I don't look at myself and <laughs> I don't look at myself in the mirror that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I've touched a lot of people in my life. I've tried to help out wherever I can in either my real estate development projects or my businesses or just my personal relationships with the community and my family and people out there. Um, I have a background where educate, which I try to help young people say that you got to get, like I said this earlier, you got to get a great education. Mm-hmm. You have to travel, and you got to be aware of the people on in in your spectrum, um, and do the do the right thing. I'm not sure what that means, but try to have a I have a background of ethical and integrity behavior in my family, and that that translates throughout my whole family life. And I want to look at the world that way, and I I like honesty and transparency and. God, I'm going to keep working toward it until I'm no longer on the planet, and I plan to be on the planet for a long time to come. I like to think I'm immortal. It's not going to happen, but I'm up there now in age, and I don't want to give it up. So I'm not sure what that vision, if I can be the right leader in the right way to help younger people or people around me see the vision that I may have about some particular subject. That one might be called visionary, but I don't. I never see myself that way. When I was a kid. I ran for the captain of the patrol when I was in the sixth grade. It was a big deal. And I won by one vote. And the teacher who then supervised it said, who'd, who'd you vote for? I said, I voted for my friend who ran against me. He said, always vote for yourself. I said, I don't know how to do that. I voted for my friend, and I ended up winning by one vote. So it's just the way I kind of navigate the planet. And I've enjoyed every bit of my life, uh, Chaim. So I've had a, I'm totally blessed with family and friends and conversations like this are they're brilliant for me and I really really have enjoyed having this conversation with you and I can't wait to see what it looks like (laughs) it's going to be great so I I do have an ending question before I ask it and you answer is there anything else that you want to share or talk about that we maybe have missed I'm sure there are tons of things, but thanks for having right. me here today. I'm sure when I so, leave, I'll think of five more things, but that's okay. There's a lot, there's a lot on the plate right yeah. here. Yeah. So we talked earlier about like the kind of place that Vegas is and the kind of people that it either attracts or produces. Uh, visionaries being one of them. So there are probably plenty of either visionaries here now or aspiring totally. visionaries. Totally. So 
as an accomplished visionary, what advice would you give a young visionary living here in Las Vegas today? Get an education. Keep your eyes wide open. Look around. Stay aware. Don't hide. Travel for sure. Travel helps hugely. Um, and like I said earlier, take care of people uh, as you go down the road so you have relationships that are, are, valuable, to you, are valuable to you and you value yourself. And that's taking care of yourself and people around you. I don't think I have any other real response to that question, but I want to stay, keep it really alert and aware and be fully alive and engaged in whatever I'm doing. So that's my daily challenge, and I'm loving everything about it. So I'll just emphasize the taking care of yourself part, 100%. which then allows you to take care of Absolutely. those around take you. Take care of yourself first. Right. Everybody else then follows your wife, your family, your children. I've got a great staff. I have Janet Collins has been my assistant for a long time now. She's terrific, takes real good care of me. Before that, I had Wanda McCorkle that took good care of me for years, and I take care of them as well. I got Michael Crisp in my life. I got my son David. I got my daughter Sarah. I got my kids and my family around me. I got a lot of friends in town. Had a real tragic experience a couple of days ago when my friend Barry Becker died. I heard about that. Accident. Um, shocking to everybody. My knees buckled when I heard the news because of our fragility. Um, on the planet, but um, that was still much of my much of my mind still today. But um, I want to just keep going. I want to stay fit and active, and I do that. And I'm playing ping pong right now, and I'm playing golf, and I'm playing tennis again. And and about, my runs have stopped because I had a hip replacement and a knee replacement. So do I miss that? Absolutely, I miss it. Um, but I find other ways to kind of take up the slack. So um, happy to be here today. I'm happy that you're here today. This has been a real treat. So thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks, man. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like the show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.